0: OCM DOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, July the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You know it. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a shout to get in the queue. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86-26. All right, I want to say good morning and congratulations to the most recent inductees into the Royal St. John's Regatta Hall of Fame. That celebration took place yesterday. Let's start with the crew that was inducted, the Torbay Fisherman's Crew, 1928-1938. to 1938. So they won each of the races that they competed in in that legendary time frame, led by stroke Mr. Robert Coppertop Codner still recognized as one of the greatest strokes to ever participate in the regatta on Kitty Bitty Lake. So they were inducted, of course. People would flock from Torbay and Outer Cove to see the Torbay Fisherman's Crew take on their rivals from Outer Cove. And so the Torbay Fisherman's Crew, 28 to 38, are in there. And my buddy Ronnie Whitten. Ronnie Whitten has now been inducted to the Hall of Fame, and rightfully so. began rowing in 1998. He rode in his first championship race in 1999. Every single year Ronnie Witten rode, he competed in the championship race. Fourteen in total for Ronnie Witten. He's got ten titles. That's the second most of any rower of all time. Way to go, Ronnie Witten. Great fella. And, of course, a member of the Crosby Industrial Crew in 2006 and 2007. Still considered one of the greatest crews of all time. Their record of 851-32 continues to be the long course record some 15 years later. And uh, Talk about legends of the pond, Mike Hickey. Mike Hickey. began rowing in 1955 at the tender age of ten. And the way it's written up is, as they say, the rest is history. So a legend as a rower, a coach, a coxswain, a volunteer, an innovator, crews that come out of the box fresh looking for someone to mentor them, teach them how to row, cox them through the racing season, people turn to Mike Hickey. One of the top of everybody's list is Mike Hickey. So congratulations to Mr. Hickey and to Mr. Witten and to the Torbay fireman's crew for their induction into the Royal St. John's Regatta. And of course, the regatta takes place next Wednesday. It'll be regatta as normal, night before events, concessions lakeside, all the rest of it, so you know the deal. Uh, just quickly, I don't know how much attention I've been paying to some things, but did the regattas in Harbour Grace and Placentia happen this year? I don't know, I wish I did. They did, did they, did they Dave? Okay, rowing with Placentia in particular is really quite an experience out on the ocean, having a pull, so yeah. Anyway, let's keep going. Good luck, congratulations to everyone uh, set to participate in this year's Sun Splash Soccer Tournament in Paradise. So 92 teams. This is a huge event. 92 teams have been uh, holding this event, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so. When my boys played it, (laughs) it was just an exciting, really busy soccer weekend that comes up this weekend in Paradise. And Jenny on the Rock, one of my Twitter followers and friends of the show, can you let me know what happened in the Atlantic Bowl football championships uh, taking place in Nova Scotia? We have a team in the under-16s and under-18s. I couldn't find the results, but I was looking for them this morning. If you can share them with me, Jenny, that would be great. All right, let's stick with the pool now for a second. Sun splash, boom, pool. All right. <laughs> Australian Ian Thorpe, swimming legend, became the first swimmer to win six gold medals at a single world championship, and that happened back in 2001. And Ian Thorpe is also the owner of one of the sport's greatest nicknames. He's the torpedo. He's still, I think, one of the national team coaches in Australia, which is a swimming powerhouse, to say the very least. He throws some other legendary swimmer names in here. Back in 72 at the Munich Games, of course, American Mark Spitz won seven gold medals in that event, set the world record several times. So Spitz was a legend. Then you fast forward to the likes of Michael Phelps with his 28 gold medals. The most decorated female swimmer of all time, I believe, is Jenny Thompson or Katie Ledecky. Uh, Thompson, Ozzy, Ledecky, an American. And, of course, we've got our list of great swimmers in the pool as well on the ladies' side for sure. Penny Oleksiak, Kylie Massey, Mar- Mar- Margaret McNeil, and others. So there's some in-the-pool notes for you this morning. What do you think? Also another interesting day in history t- uh, today in 2005. The provost, the Provisional Irish Republican uh, Army, the IRA, that's their military arm of the IRA, they officially ended their 30-year armed campaign to win the independence of Northern Ireland. (sighs) Under international scrutiny, began decommissioning all of their weapons. say they would pursue exclusively peaceful means to its ends. That happened in 2005. And, of course, the stories of the troubles, well documented and understood in this country. You want to talk about it? Let's go. All right. Just a uh, curious one. Oh, someone's giving me some information on the Harbour Grace Regatta. It's coming this Saturday. Okay, thanks a lot for that, Chris. All right. So you talk about government revenue, government expenditures, and, of course, we have ourselves pigeonholed in certain kinds of boxes. Now, there is opportunities potentially in wind and what have you, and I think still massive opportunities in the mining sector. And this is a little bit outside the box. I'm not talking about massive big revenues that could indeed come in the door, but I saw this mentioned on Twitter, so I'll throw it out there. Wonder how popular the customized license plate would be, the so-called vanity plate. You know the ones I'm talking about. If, if you're Kramer on Seinfeld, you give an homage to your favorite um, proctologist, you know, the one i getting that there. All right, so I just had a quick look around to see how much they cost. On the average, to convert a regular license plate to a vanity plate, around $300 to $325. I think it would probably be very popular around here. What it would also do is set the stage for when you get a license plate, that's your license plate. You keep that license plate, which could indeed go a long way towards decreasing the numbers of people going around out there with expired plates and unregistered vehicles. And you know the deal. We hear it all the time when people get pulled over with these extraordinary whopping sums of outstanding fines. But the personalized license plate, 310 to 325 hundred It's not huge, but it's something. Now, we've had a hard time keeping paint on the license plate, but that's a funny idea that I saw someone throw it out there. I would also add in, when it comes to the roadways and your vehicle and your license plate, is I have not heard a good argument against speed cameras and red light cameras. Privacy, all right. I mean, it's not as if you can't be captured by a a doorbell camera or cameras that are absolutely everywhere. We just came back from holidays from a city that has CCTV cameras every step of the way. I think there was little blind spots that totaled about the size of Brother O'Hare Arena. Uh, so anyway, the license plate thing and the red light and speed cameras, I think the cost recovery would be pretty quick on those two fronts. What do you think? Throw it out there. Also, for those of us who take the phone out of our pocket and try to leave it aside as we drive around, and we know so many people don't do that, and the numbers of folks who are distracted while driving by their phone is enormous. This story comes from Red Deer, but I'm sure it happens here as well. 911 operators and dispatchers are saying, please don't jam your phone into the cup holder in your vehicle. If you have an iPhone 8 or later, they have an emergency system on it. So the emergency SOS call, all you have to do is press down both sides, the buttons on both sides, a new screen appears, and soon a countdown begins and an alert sounds. If no action is taken, 911 call is triggered. You know what happens here. Because it's a pretty normal spot for people to want to jam their phone while they drive. And hopefully they leave it there. But it can indeed call 911 if you have the buttons on both sides to press because you jammed it in to the cup holder. Anyway, how's that for interesting? Let's keep going. So we see the highway, the Beta Square Highway, is now reopened. And they've done a good job trying to combat the fire. There is a pretty sizable crew doing exactly that. But they've only maintained or got uh, 7% of the fire contained at this moment in time, but you're able to travel freely along that stretch of highway at this moment in time. So there's two helicopters, twenty-nine firefighters, eight pump units that were fighting the fire as of last evening. So obviously this hot weather has had a contributing factor, of course, to the, the forest fire in that region, but also it's had taken its toll on some of the Salmon rivers. So We all know what's going on here. So high water temperatures, low water levels, have caused DFO, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, to shut down the, well, not fully shut down, exploits, Leamington, Western Arm Rivers, Peters River, Charles Brook in the Bay of Exploits. They're close to salmon anglers outside the morning hours. So you can go out an hour before sunrise and get your line wet until 10 a.m., and then you have to stop until the conditions improve. So with the lack of rain and the extraordinarily hot temperatures, high water temp, low water level, those rivers have been had their hours of operations reduced significantly? So that's your heads up on that when you want to talk about it. Let's go. All right, back to healthcare. It's hard to avoid, isn't it? All right, let's talk about nurses. We spoke with the Vet Coffee, the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador, a couple of days ago here in the program. The numbers are stark. We've had a keen focus on doctors and fair ball, but there's 600 nursing vacancies. Another 900 nurses are set to retire, and that has thrown the healthcare system into a tizzy. They also add to the fact that it's not just nurses and doctors. Other staff in the hospital that are in demand and low numbers is contributing to what has been a real problem inside of healthcare itself. So what does it go on here to say? Whether it be uh, orderlies and the like, I had it right in front of me a second ago. Anyway, the other professionals in the hospitals that are not up to the numbers required for the regular proceedings, then here we go. So, okay, they're routinely down porters, LPNs, personal care attendants, secretaries, porters, oh my goodness. So, that's the issue. But it's also come with an additional price tag. Not just for overtime numbers for nurses and how many nurses have moved on from full-time permanent to casual positions so they can strike that much-coveted work-life balance and what that's meant. So, this is a massive problem. Let's talk about the price tag. Now that the regional health authorities have had to hire on Uh, private, expensive, or costly agencies, travel nurses. I didn't even know travel nurses were a thing, to be honest with you. So that's what they've had to turn to. Let's get some of the numbers out there for your consideration. All right, Central Health. They've hired 46 travel nurses, some of whom have completed multiple stints with the health authority. So a spokesperson for the Central Health says that they've spent $410,000 on travel nurses to date. Eastern Health has used 14 of those nurses. Average cost for one of these travel nurses and a 12-hour shift is about $1,100. Labrador Grenfell Health has used 46 travel nurses at, to a cost of over $1 million. Western Health says they have not used travel nurses to date. But I would imagine, given the trend in the numbers of nurses working, the numbers of wor- uh, nurses retiring, the numbers moving from full-time permanent to casual, these numbers are only going to get and grow as time goes by. So there's just another wrinkle into the issue. Not, you know, of course it affects us as patients, but inside the dollars and cents world, 600 vacancies, 900 others set to retire. Where the answer lies, I don't know. I think the government acknowledges that the public uh, doesn't want to have to rely on using these travel nurses, although I suppose if you're in the healthcare churn, you don't really care who the pro is, if they're a travel nurse or permanent staff, you just need to be attended to if you're inside one of the province's hospitals. But there are some additional numbers regarding the nursing issue. Also, do we have any further update as to ex- exactly what's going on and where we are in the transition from four regional health authorities into one, one behemoth? The questions still remain is to how many jobs that might see go over the wayside, identifying redundancies and what have you, and where the jobs will be. That'll be a concern, especially outside of Eastern Health. You still need to have representatives of health authority, the one health authority, where you live. So some of these uh, questions remain unanswered at this moment in time. You want to bring that forward? Let's go. There's also some questions looming, I think, in education. Not only the status of the blending into the Newfoundland Labrador English-speaking school district into the Department of Education, Remember, it's not that long ago that they held a symposium regarding the high school students. How much curriculum was delivered, where some of the gaps are in preparedness for post-secondary. It seemed like a really important event at the time to me. haven't heard a peep since. It was all in an effort not only to understand what happened in the last three years for high schoolers, but also identifying the gaps to put the supports in place so they can help further prepare graduates, and I would imagine first year's, Uh, the people who just completed their first year in post-secondary, to make sure we have them on the right track. If you have a staggered start to your post-secondary career, it makes it tougher and tougher to get through and across the finish line with your degree the way we have in the past. I don't even know if that's an appropriate way to put it. But if you are not fully prepared for, let's say, Memorial University, it becomes extremely difficult. You don't necessarily get your hand held like you may have in high school. Testing is different. Deadlines have to be met. And so, if you don't have all the curriculum absorbed, then these additional layers of complexity and an d- absolutely stark difference in the approach that the lecturers and professors and the school itself will take, those are some big ones that I haven't heard a peep about what happened at the high school symposium and what the end result was. Sticking with the health, uh, pardon me, the education board for a second. Apparently, there's been a hack of a couple of dozen personal user accounts at the NLEST. Someone reported fraudulent uh, credit card activity. So yet another example. When you add it to the almost 38,000 folks who have contacted because of the Meditech system hack, the cyber attack, these become huge issues. But just extend it one step further. Because government needs to do an excellent job in protecting our personal private information, banking for sure, social insurance numbers and the like, absolutely. I wonder how much attention we all pay to what we have on our phone. You know, things we use that for our comfort and convenience, whether it be a fast food store app or the coffee company app, and some of the really uber popular ones that we use for entertainment. You know, there's a reason why when you go to type into a search bar, a couple of letters, they know what you want already. And then you go to something like TikTok. Extremely popular. I don't have a TikTok account. No one needs me to prove how great a dancer I am. But the amount of personal information gleaned, and in this case, by the Chinese, through TikTok, is really quite something. Now, you might not be wary of it. You might not share much on the way of personal information that could jeopardize you via your TikTok account. But it's worthwhile knowing what's going on with some of these applications that so many, I mean, millions and millions and millions, in some cases, billions of people use. So just flick that out there, and I wonder if you've even given it much consideration. Okay, a couple of industry notes before we get going here. We'll soon find out, I think it's August 5th, we'll find out what the future holds for the St. Lawrence Floor Spire Mine, and there's some 250 employees. There's about a dozen on site now, and the rest were laid off. So it's proceeding through the, well, Grant Thornton is the part of the entity that's looking over, it. They're dealing with the company's Creditor Arrangement Act, so we'll find out. Because of some of the clauses in the act, we don't know how many bids, what kind of bids have been proposed, but on the 5th they'll decide, I guess one or maybe more bidders go to the courts to figure out what's going to happen, but those 250 people and their families waiting with bated breath. That particular mine is only one of few active producers of the acid grade floor spire in the entire North American continent. So apparently this deposit is known for its accessibility, high grades, absence of impurities, there's been some issues there, infrastructure-wise. They've got a ton of creditors, including some contractors on the Buren Peninsula owed in the neighborhood of $1.5 million, and some others that are owed tens of millions of dollars. But there'll certainly be a lot of anxious people on the Buren Peninsula awaiting the final results of what's going to happen with the St. Lawrence spire Mine. And we've been talking about the new wind opportunities. Still a lot of questions. Not going to dismiss seizing every opportunity. Why would we? But the minister responsible for that particular portfolio, Andrew Parsons, is going to join us a little bit later in the program. If you want to suggest something of concern that you are confused about or would like some more information or details on, we'll be happy to pose those questions to the minister on your behalf. And okay, information purposes only. So yesterday, the province's COVID hub was updated. There has been three more people who have died a COVID-related death that brings the total to 205 since March of 2020. There are 17 people in the hospital, one person in critical care. And we know the booster availability, 50-plus, uh, residents and congregants, living facilities, and the like. And now, pfft, coming up this morning, the acting public uh, the acting public health uh, official, Dr. Roseanne Sevier, is going to have a media availability and briefing about the first probable case of monkeypox in the province. Oh, man. So I don't know much about the monkeypox virus. I don't really know what to say at this moment in time. Hopefully there'll be some more information if you're so inclined to absorb it, once again, coming from Dr. Sevier this morning. Oh boy. Let's talk about maybe just some way to find a little something a bit more fun to occupy our minds with as well. Looking for that distraction. Please tell me some good news. I wish I was in Quebec City right now. Right now. For the, let's see, what do they call it? It's the a Fédération Internationale des Sociéties Magiques, otherwise known as the World Championships of Magic, being held in Quebec City. This has been happening since uh, uh, 1948. It's the first time it's taken place outside of Europe and Asia ever. And so here they are in Canada. And there are a ton, let's see, thousands of magicians from over 50 countries are right now in Quebec City. I really do appreciate a little bit of street magic. And you know there is, is a thing called the sucker effect. One of the participating magicians, when he was a child, his grandfather performed a card trick, and he was mystified. He was the only person in the room that didn't know how it worked, and, of course, that's called the soccer effect. But every now and then, just to be taken away to a place that's a little bit more mystical and, yes, magical, is a little bit of fun, right? Absolutely. So the World Championships of Magic in Quebec City right now, apparently, we have a a Grand Prix winner. His name is Sean Farquhar. He won the Grand Prix of Magic back in 2009. About that. Favorite local uh, magician? You got one, Dave? Mark Weber for me. Mark Weber for me. Good morning, Mark. Great kid. All right, so let's stick with some magic. This tune was released on my wife's birthday, the 2nd of November, 1981. It came from the police's fourth album called Ghost in the Machine. Every little thing she does is magic. Welcome back. Just a couple of good, very quick notes. So the Harbor Grace Regatta is taking place this Saturday. Placentia went last week. So there's the update there. There our under-16, under-18 football teams at the Atlantic Bowl. Both came up a little bit short yesterday, but they're having a great time. They're going to play in the bronze medal uh, games coming up this weekend. They're actually playing at Acadia University, where the best man at my wedding played quarterback in the last in the late 80s, Cherry Hill. Uh, also, this is an important public service announcement. The memorial service at the Forest Road Cemetery in St. John's is going ahead tonight at 7 p.m., So so, the memorial service at the Forest Road Cemetery in St. John's, going ahead tonight at 7. Let's go to line number two, begin the program, speak with the business manager at the Teamsters 855. That's Hubert Dog. Good morning, Hubert. You're on the air.
2: Good morning, Patty. How's the day going,
1: you? So far, so good. How about you?
2: <laughs> just another uh, just riddle on list. <laughs> Pretty much sitting, sitting here this morning, looking at a picture that was sent to me by our team, by uh, some of our members. It was in, uh, in the I guess we still in the eastern region. I guess the more central than what we are. It shows me a picture of six ambulances parked outside of GB Cross in Clarenville. Now, six ambulances parked outside the hospital shouldn't be a big concern. I mean, it's probably a normal everyday occurrence. Probably more ambulances there. The practice of setting here is those were all the ambulances that were available on that day for the entire Bonavista Peninsula. We normally have an allotment of twelve ambulances for that area, so we were down down to half on that day and you know it has it stems from the fact that you know that we are seeing the hospital closures there, but also from the fact that we just don't have the paramedics and EMRs to staff these ambulances anymore and uh, it's very 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 concerning I mean this is, this is only one area and this, this is only you know one, one incident that that I am I am aware of. I did write a letter a short while back to then uh, Minister Haggie. You know, correct myself. I wrote a letter to the Premier. Then I got an answer from from Mister Haggie about using you know, our primary ambulances, which is you know basically what all these are now, to do secondary runs. Mm-hmm. And all I got back was the same uh, the same paragraph that I sent him about how the ASA, you know, just the Ambulance Service Agreement, which covers the uh, the operator's agreement with the government for providing ambulance services, says that they can't leave their areas uncovered to go do routine runs. And, I mean, that was the whole point of my letter was to let him know that that happened. And then he just wrote me back a letter saying that it's not supposed to happen. So that's that's where we're to. Well, just so
1: people know what we're talking about, Hubert, so these ambulances are parked there to offload. And a secondary run would be a non-medical emergency, more transporting someone for an appointment or some treatment or what have you. So not a medical emergency where you've called 911 and needed first responders, paramedics in this case, and their primary ambulance, just so people know what we're talking about.
2: Okay. You know, no, that's fair. So, you know, my, my, my paramedics are reaching out to me, and we, we started a social media campaign now through our, through our members to try to get the word out there that we're, we're in dire straits for when it comes to staffing levels for these ambulances. Like, we had on this particular day, we had six ambulances that were not available to respond should the need be there. I spoken to the operator. He told me that even to try to keep up with the demand for that day, he switched out nine ambulances with those ambulances that were parked at GB Cross just to try to get ambulances out and back down the Peninsula where they where they were needed. And it was just it was just a constant battle for them that day. I mean, my hats are off to them. They worked very very diligently to try to keep the service to the area. But without the resources, we just can't do it. And what was even more alarming to me is uh, the operator of Random Sound Paramedic College has told me they will not be running a class in September because there's no interest there. He told me he believes that Kean and Central are in the same boat. They won't be running a class there. So we're left with Kona, or excuse me, College of North Atlantic running the program. Maximum students they're going to put out is 24. That's a far cry from the need that this province needs right now to provide just the bare minimum services that are required by the uh, annual Service Agreement.
1: It's truly remarkable when every single available ambulance is parked outside a hospital that just screams the red alerts that we've talked about so often on the show. That doesn't even factor in the burnout and the numbers of paramedics who have left or are now considering, still considering leaving this province for better conditions. The whole disparity between pay in the public and the private sector, hours of operations, I mean there's just a litany of issues facing the province's paramedics and then of course for most people who are not working in that profession or don't have someone belonging to working in that profession you could indeed find yourself in a position where you need a paramedic and a primary ambulance today and every single one that's available in your region is parked outside the hospital with a patient on board unreal
2: you know, and yeah, you know, I, and I asked about the the you know the the pyramid, the, uh, the the transition process that we're going to be moving into. Which I mean, you know, we all know it's been pushed down the road again another year. This is the second extension that's been applied to it. And um, the the, uh, the letter goes on to say that the uh, they held the cord, Blueprint will be coming out in a couple of months. Now the government has already gone through and did a did a, a Finch report that laid out the process for this transaction to take this transition to take place. And I mean, if the government wants to stick to that, we're in July right now. At this point, the you know the request for for, for quotes should have been released. The request for proposals should have been released, and you know we should we're moving close to when it should be the, the close of the request for proposals according to this document by the end of october whoever is going to be taking over the service is supposed to know but you know i do know that the, rec- the procurement um, there was a quote put out for the procurement for for the province I, and i don't know if that's that's been awarded or not i'm not pretty sure it's closed but we haven't seen any, any any other movement on transitioning to the new ambulance service we know the ministers or the the, the health board has already told the private operators that you know come march 31st you don't well the, nobody has come out to say what the plan is going to do what's what's going to happen here on march 31st our paramedics like you said are stressed out they're burnt out i'm, I'm constantly getting calls from the operators who are you know our, our, our members are putting in for vacation time they can't accrue vacation time at this time because the because of staffing levels the medics are going, they're seeing their doctors. As soon as the doctors lay eyes off, it's like, you cannot continue on like this. And they're putting them out on sick leave, which is putting a greater strain on the members that are left there to try to provide these services.
1: Fair enough. It's one thing to know, March 31st is the magic day. But what that means, what it looks like, what the impact will be, pretty important details yet to be fully understood. And add to it, we've been talking about this transition for years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, yeah. Going to, I'm going to say seven or eight years. Yeah. So here we are. Uh, Hubert, anything else to add this morning before we have to say goodbye?
2: I got that off my chest. Like I said, I mean, we're hoping that the members, you know, when they get to get this information, when they get out on their social media, people will start picking up the social media, getting contact with your MHAs. I mean, this this is not something that we can just, you know, slide under the mat, you know, saying, oh, you know, well, that'll fix itself. It's not going to fix itself. And unfortunately, you know, as you mentioned there earlier, we're going to reach a point where you're going to call for an ambulance. And the ambulances are either going to be parked outside the hospital, waiting on not to allow patients, or they're going to be parked back at their base garage because there's nobody to staff them. And the people of the province really, and their government really, needs to act now. Put a temporary plan in place if that's what it takes to get us to March. If we can't do anything before March, but we need we need to have these, these issues addressed. We're, 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 we're going to lose the system altogether.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Herbert, Herb, here, oh, Hubert. Pardon me, sir. Uh, thank you for this. Thank
2: you very much now. Take
1: care. You too, bye bye Super Ties, the business manager of the Team 855. Let's take a break. When we come back now boy, we talk about shortages and they're very real. And we've talked to Dr. Janine Hubbard about the shortage of psychologists and the fact that one of the programs has been deferred for a year. Also, inside, the not only the shortages, but the types of services that may or may not be available. In this case, we're talking about the lack of services available for neurodiverse adults with psychologist Heather Paul. Right after this. Don't go away.
3: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Good morning to psychologist Heather Paul. Dr. Paul, you're on the air.
4: Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Very well, thanks for asking. How about you?
4: Great, great. Um, I'm just, I guess, the spirit moved me this morning. I wanted to uh, just offer my support to folks who are trying to, I guess, lobby or make people aware of the, of the difficulty of accessing services for neurodiverse adults. Um, I've been working in the profession for many, many years. Uh, and basically neurodiverse base is, is means that there's a variation in brain function. So people are used to things like autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, but also fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And so there's no predictor really of, of who will uh, be diagnosed with, say, ADHD or ASD. However, we do know with FASD it has to do with prenatal alcohol exposure. However, at the end of the day, particularly ASD and FASD, these children become adults. And um, there's a lot of support, and there has been, for children within the school system and within the health system for neurodiverse children. However, what's been happening, in my experience, is that when they become adults, there's not a lot of coordinated effort. The other problem that I see is that... Some children who become adults um, who are neurodiverse do not meet the criteria that is required for, say, full-time support or have significant um, intellectual capabilities that would lead them to need full-time support. So there are a lot of neurodiverse adults who go to university, go to college, they work, uh, they they live in their their homes, they they try to live independently. And sometimes we refer to them as high-functioning. Now, I'm not particularly fan of that particular term because it makes it appear that everything in their life they're able to make decisions on and plan and organize and foresee consequences and things like that when they actually that's not the case so a lot of policies that are written whether it's in the justice system or the health system make the assumption that the person is capable of understanding all the implications of things like for example consent forms um, agreement to treatment those types of things and when a person turns uh, eighteen in this province Then you need another, you need their permission to be able for families to access any of their services. So, for example, a person who um, has a diagnosis of, a, you know, in some form of neurodiversity may be able to carry on a conversation, but at the same time, sometimes their executive functioning is so concrete. So when someone says, do you understand that? And they may say yes, but then two days later, they go completely against whatever it appears that they understood. And so the policies are written uh, with a view that the person is able to fully comprehend and appropriately respond and completely understand the interaction, those types of things. So, of course, what happens is that people are working in the system that their hands are tied, particularly with the adults. Because if, for example, a client of mine um, accesses services, but they say, well, you know, I don't think you really need to speak to Heather, uh, but yeah, they really need to speak to me because I may be doing a therapy that may be contra- you know, counterproductive to say what the FACT team may be doing. So that's the first piece, is that some policies need to be written with a view of neuro- neurodiversity. The other thing, too, is, is that the lack of training for specialized supports. Um, funding is available there. Um, you know, you just make an application and, and uh, funding is available, but the problem is getting somebody who's actually trained and understands, say, FASD or ASD. Um, and I like to call persons who are working with adults personal assistants. I'm not particularly, again, a fan of support worker because a lot of folks are able to do some basic care and some basic um, homemaking skills. However, it's the supports required with employment. You know, when you get into mm-hmm. being an adult, you've got all these adult world problems, you know, employment, finances, budgeting, uh, understanding the banking system, understanding uh, the Internet, understanding these things. And so what happens is a lot of problems ensue, and the parents and the families are left to deal with it. And a lot of families, I find, are burnt out. And despite the, the really good work of other agencies and, and professionals that I've been working with, our hands are tied. So I think it goes back to whether it's government officials or lobbying in a different way and, and do a different strategy, that you have to understand neurodiversity. And once you understand neurodiversity, then you understand it's the it's it's lens, you know, policies that then are – seen through the lens of
1: that. Yeah, you, know? you mentioned ASD, so mm-hmm. I, I think that's yeah. uh, Autism Spectrum, spectrum Disorder. disorder. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's curious, and I know this is kind of outside the conversation, mm-hmm. the whole sure. concept of aging out, so supports mm-hmm. for neuro- neurodiverse children, mm-hmm. and aging right. out of the foster care system, and the need mm-hmm. for young adult cancer Canada. this happens in so many different arenas yeah. that it's really curious how that's the case, unfortunately so. Okay, so yeah. the need for services, because there's no real so-called one right way of thinking and interacting and... Learning. So, what do these services look like? What what, what happens? Right. And I mean, not to get into the psychologist world yeah. and all the mm-hmm. clinical terms and stuff, but what kind of services are we talking about?
4: Well, the first thing we're talking about is, for example, um, home supports. And when I mean home supports, I mean supports for the families, supports for personal assistance supports. So we're talking about an individual um, who's carefully paired with the person who's neurodiverse. Um, and not just because they work with the home support, and I'm not being disparaging against home support services because our families have used them anyway. Um, but not just make, matching them because they happen to be free and have a few hours. There has to be a consistent person who understands. So, for example, if a person who's neurodiverse, <coughs> excuse me, wakes up in the morning, <coughs> excuse me, and they haven't had a good night's sleep for whatever reason. Um, And all the plans that you had made for that day, they're a bit slower. Um, You don't get upset over that. You understand that that's the nature of neurodiversity, you know. Or when you're trying to instruct or help or teach or engage or provide socialization or do some activities or whatever, uh, you present it in a way that the person, you know the person and you know that they'll understand, and you also be able to pick up on cues of which you know they don't understand because, because a lot of neurodiverse adults are very good at masking, very, very good at masking. Um, so the supports, the home supports, whether you call it respite, and I like a personal assistant to the person um, who helps guide the person throughout their day. And if they, need, if they need to be shown things, fine, but they help guide them. Time management is very, very poor, very, very poor, uh, helping them understand time management. That's one of the supports. The other supports is counseling, both family counseling as well as individual counseling, because there's a lot of comorbidities that happen as well. So family counseling and individual counseling by a therapist who understands ASD, neurodiversity, FASD, ADHD, because a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy does not apply well to, for example, individuals with FASD and ASD. Diagnosis. There are a lot of people still in the generation that have missed the diagnosis of either ASD or FASD as adults because they were not they're a part of that middle generation that were not part of the diagnostic uh, emphasis that was placed on children over the past number of years. So they've aged out. So what happens is is that they become adults. And it seems to me the only people who understand or realize that these folks become adults are the families. Nobody else seems to figure that they're going to become adults. Or they become adults and they say, oh, everything's good now. You know, and it's not. Uh, Another thing is services is a coordinated effort for even for diagnostic and support. And so instead of like the right hand knowing the left hand, you know, uh, fact teams are being established and they're wonderful teams. They're fabulous because at least now we have a coordinated effort of services, but they're not in every community. And then, I mean, then you talk about the rural piece.
1: Now this question is yeah. probably mm-hmm. uh, I'll try my best. Yeah. So I know that one neurodiverse adult is exactly that. One and yeah. everyone will be different. <laughs> Same thing when we talk about autism and the spectrum. Anyway, if you've right. met one person on the spectrum, that's it. Mm-hmm. You've met one person on the spectrum. Right. So, what are the real-life implications of a lack of services?
4: Okay. So, for example, a 22-year-old who, uh, you know, can get a get up and make their bed and all those kinds of things. So they go to college or they go to university. And so without any supports, because, I mean, of all appearances, they seem to be a typical, you know, post-secondary student. So they go off to college or university. They have uh, assignments to do. And the assignments are due, say, two weeks' time. The next thing you know, the assignment's not turned in. It's not even started. Well, I thought I had a lot of time for that. Or they go with an employment situation, and an employer says... I'd like for you to tidy up or say, I'd like for you to uh, put this particular stuff on the shelf here. Okay. So there's one box there of things. So they take the one box and they put the stuff on the shelf. Now, there may be three other boxes following it, but because you weren't clear, because it was you and I, it might be, I'd like you to put all this stuff on. You see? So the person say, I did what you told me to do.
1: And then it's not just one circumstance or one event; the snowball effect takes place.
4: Well,
5: exactly. So you get no, so far
1: behind that all of a sudden services might be more required, and more intensely than they would have been with ongoing support. Uh, exactly. I'll give you the final and you word, Doctor Paul. Of crises, yeah, sure. Right? You end up with emotional crises. The other thing too
4: is is that um, persons with with the neurodiversity then are very vulnerable because they can't. They they can't necessarily read social situations or put in vulnerable situations. So you end up, for example, in trouble with the law or in, tr- in um, uh, you know, following down the wrong route. You end up with addictions. You end up with a whole bunch of things, and the person doesn't understand how they got there. Mm-hmm. These were my friends. They told me I could do this.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a yeah. remarkable summary statement you made that, you know, it seems that others don't realize outside the family that mm-hmm. you're going to turn 18, hopefully, and then you're still mm-hmm. going to need the supports, but all of a sudden they magically disappear like they do in many other walks of life with this so-called uh, concept of aging out. I really appreciate your time and your yep. perspective this morning. Dr. Paul, thanks for doing yep. this.
4: Oh, I'll, I'll just, I'm not a doctor. Oh, prob- my, I, my apologies. Doctor, but thank you. One of these, no problem, one of these days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when you do, get back to so I can congratulate you live. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> okay, thanks, Heather.
4: Thank you.
6: Bye-bye. Bye.
1: All right, bye-bye. Psychologist Heather Paul, uh, important topic there. So stick with us here this morning. We are going to take a break right now. We are indeed going to hear from Dr. Roseanne Sevier. We need to share information. We would be betraying our duty uh, to not do so. And then when we come back, regardless of the topic, if you want to bring it forward on this program and tell me some good news, whatever you want to do, you can do it right after this. Don't go away.
7: Newfoundland and Labrador has its first probable case of monkeypox. First, I think it's uh, important that I give you an idea of what the the definition of a probable case is. So a probable case for us is defined as a person of any age who presents with an unexplained acute rash or lesions, and as one or more of the following has an epidemiological link to a probable or confirmed monkeypox case in the 21 days before symptom onset, such as a face-to-face exposure, including health workers without appropriate personal protective equipment, direct physical contact, including sexual contact, or contact with contaminated materials, such as clothing um, or bedding, or reported travel to or residence in a location where monkeypox is reported in the 21 days before the case's symptom onset. Since the first onset of cases throughout the rest of the country, public health in our province has been preparing. As with any virus, we recognize it is only a matter of time before it enters our sphere. Education is always an important tool in the public health toolbox, and that is why we are focused on ensuring that healthcare providers and the public know the symptoms. People usually develop symptoms 5 to 21 days after being infected with the monkeypox virus. Symptoms usually occur in two stages. In the first stage of the virus, one may experience fever, chills, swollen lymph nodes, headache, muscle pain, joint pain, back pain, and fatigue or exhaustion. In stage two of the illness, a rash typically develops, usually within one to three days, sometimes longer, after the fever develops. The rash often starts on the face, arms, and or legs, but can affect other parts of the body such as the hand, the feet, mouth, uh, genitals, and the anal region. The rash progresses from raised red bumps to blisters to pustules and then scabs over. Scabs off. Scabs fall off leaving new skin. Monkeypox presentation during the current outbreak may not present with the classical symptoms and sign and an individual could potentially have a rash before the fever or have just one lesion in the genital or anal area rather than multiple lesions on other sites in the body. An individual is considered contagious from the start of symptoms until the scabs fall off revealing new skin. This usually takes about two to four weeks. If you start having symptoms of monkeypox, you should isolate at home and immediately contact your healthcare provider for advice. If you are identified as a contact of someone that has monkeypox and you have no symptoms, you'll be offered a vaccine. Uh, MvMune is the name of the vaccine, and that will be uh, offered to you by a public health official. This post-exposure vaccination may prevent the disease or decrease its severity. Uh, You can reduce your risk of becoming infected with or spreading monkeypox by staying at home if you are sick, avoiding direct physical contact, including sexual contact with someone who is infected or may have been exposed, practicing good hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette, including covering your coughs and sneezes, or wearing a well-fitting mask, clean and, def- uh, and, and uh, disinfect high-touch surfaces, and, pra- and practice safe sex. The current monkey-pock outbreak has disproportionately affected the two-spirited, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer population. The virus is spread through contact and social networks, and international travel, as we all know, has increased. People in the 2SGBTQ plus community are often proactive in protecting their health and getting regularly tested for sexually transmitted infections. This may have helped detect monkeypox early in this community. While most recent infections are occurring in people who identify as men who have sex with men, the virus can affect anyone through close personal contact, regardless of age, sex, gender, or sexual orientation. Our message today is about understanding the signs and symptoms and learning how we can control the spread. It is also one of understanding in terms of those who may need our support, help and support should they have to
3: isolate. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM.
7: I will now invite questions from the media.
8: Dr. Sevier, I'm wondering if you can
9: give
7: us
8: more information about where this person got the case. Had they traveled recently and brought it back, or is there concerned that there may be more cases if they acquired it locally?
7: So I can't really discuss an uh, in, in individual case, but in, in general in, in a province like ours, just with just like with COVID, introduction is often through travel.
8: How many cases are currently in Canada? Do
7: you know? Uh I did know and I when I talked to somebody at the interview yesterday and I will tell you it's I think it's six hundred and eighty um, I, can I get you that information, the, the correct number, because I'm going to give you yesterday's number anyway?
8: Okay. Yeah. People who are concerned that they might have this, what sort of options are public health making available in terms of getting tested? I'm thinking especially people who may not have you know, a family doctor that they can get in to see, for example.
7: Yeah, so if, if someone doesn't have a family doctor, then they can call 811 and things will be coordinated um, for them and, and the testing would, would be done at the hospital.
9: There's probably, you know, a lot of worry coming from people to hear about, you know, another uh, global health emergency. So, you know, how does this differ from the type of emergency we were in with COVID? Should people have these worries that they're having right now?
7: And that's a really good question. And uh, and I know people are tired and, and, and I know people are saying, oh, not not another one, but I think this is different. Plus I think, you know, we've weathered the first one really well, Newfoundland has done a wonderful job. And really this is our same goal is to prevent human to human transmission, to interrupt that transmission and spread. But uh, monkeypox is different in that it's, uh, it's an infection that once you get it, you also uh, have long-term immunity, which we haven't had with COVID. Also we, uh, unlike uh, COVID, we have a vaccine available, um, which we didn't have when COVID started.
0: Uh, Can you say what that vaccine is?
7: Yeah, the vaccine is called Invimune and it's a it's a vaccine, and it's currently in, in shorter supply because it's ba- basically been kept, you know, for against smallpox and, and and developed for smallpox, but it also works for monkeypox since they're in the same uh, viral family. Um, so that's that, and it's been mainly kept in smaller supplies. All provinces, all countries have it, but uh, so now that supply is being ramped up so that uh, we can use it. We have enough here for to get people at post
8: contact.
0: And are people already vaccinated against it? Like, is that part of the the ones that
8: children would have gotten?
7: No, no. so what? I think I have the little pock on my arm. Some of us have that little pock on our arm and I think, uh, I'm not gonna say how old I am, but the, that, uh, that vaccination stopped around 1972 or okay. 73. So, the, so the, that we haven't given routine smallpox vaccinations since then.
9: Uh, you talked a little bit about the symptoms and uh, the steps that they go through. What does the timeline look like for someone when they are infectious? Um, how long that lasts?
7: So, so, you are infectious from the time you start having symptoms, if that symptom should be fever, um, and um, or, uh, or or even that malaise, those con- what we call uh, constitutional symptoms, and you're infectious until the um, lesions, uh, scab over, fall off, and you know yourself when you get a scab and you get that new skin that grows under it, you're infectious till that point, which is <coughs> sometimes between two and four weeks, and my trusty work colleagues have told me that the number is 745 cases in Canada at the moment, and I can tell you that there it's in five pr- provinces, we will become the sixth.
8: Some of the other provinces that have had cases have been doing vaccination campaigns, targeting the LGBTQ community, um, people that they consider high risk. Is there any plan to start rolling out vaccinations beyond the close contacts here?
7: So we're having, we will be having discussions on that and and how we um, approach that. So right at the moment, um, the vaccine being in short supply has been (coughs) focused to those areas across the country where they're experiencing outbreaks. Um, that is not our situation here but uh, and and that has allowed for that pre-exposure prophylaxis um, to be given to people in high-risk communities
8: how many doses do
7: we have i can't tell you the exact number to be honest
3: uh can you explain
0: like just how transmissible this is i mean obviously we we, many in the public have become familiar with transmissibility in terms of covid 19 so like i guess in comparison to that like how how transmissible
7: So, So certainly in, in nowhere near okay. COVID-19. Not this, We're not dealing with the same situation at all. It takes a really close personal physical contact. The other way it's spread is through um, if um, somebody has their lesions or sores and they contaminate bed sheets or linens, then um, th- that it can transmit that way. And then through close contact, respiratory cough, sneeze, um, with prolonged close, close contact. But um, I just attended a WHO session yesterday morning, and um, most, of the, most of it was through direct physical contact, and there hasn't been much widespread scene outside, outside, um, outside, uh, you know, households or anything like that.
9: I know you can't speak to where this case had come from, but is there any idea of how many people may have been in contact with the probable case?
7: And I can't give numbers like that because, you know, we're, and, and I think I've spoken about before in public health, people give us their private information and we need to guard it, but um, rest assured that uh, contact tracing is ongoing and and, uh, and those close contacts uh, are being uh, identified and, and uh, educated and being offered in
3: Can you say generally the region where this case is, as we do with COVID, you know, there's so many cases in this region, Labrador, east, west?
7: Yeah, and no, and, and we're not, we're not, uh, doing that, I don't think it, it really helps. It doesn't. Re- it's not like COVID. It's a totally different illness. It doesn't really help. And I think, um, you know, some of our concerns about the, about uh, this is, is, is about stigmatization of, of certain groups. And I think, um, you know, when you come from a small smaller region, it, it makes people more identifiable. And something we never really want to have happen. People have a right to their privacy, and a right to respect about um, their their decisions about how they live their lives.
3: Given that it does, as you said, disproportionately affected the gay or the queer community, how do do you get past that though, I mean the, the numbers speak for themselves as far as how this has been transmitting in Canada. So what's the uh, you know how's the struggle with that?
7: Well, uh, you know I think we we know and, and this was discussed at WHO yesterday that there was circulation in the community before this right, but that was undetected, and really once it entered this community, you know whichever way it did, um, and uh, you know they tend to have strong social networks, and and it's, all viruses love a social network right, and so um, and I think why we picked it up so quickly is because this community is proactive about their sexual health, and they do uh, tend to get STI testing. And uh, so, so, you know, that allows us also to, you know, work with the community to, uh, to eradicate the disease and to stop transmission. So I'm very hopeful in, in this, and, in, in, and sometimes when you have it in a, you know, it, it starts in a community, it always starts somewhere. Right? And a virus doesn't choose, it just takes the opportunities that it's given. So, um, you know, in working with the community, you know, we should be able to it's, it, it, to stop the transmission.
3: Was there anything that this WHO, the WHO session you had yesterday that you mentioned, was this an international gathering? Was it a yes. Canadian? Yeah. Okay, so uh, was it, what, what was your takeaway? What was the significant takeaway for you, you know, with your knowledge of this? Was yeah. there an eyebrow eyebrow-raising moment? Was there something that you probably weren't?
7: No I, you know, I think one of the things that really struck me is that um, you know th- this the first case was in 1972 in a child in, that was had contact with a, a rodent, an infected rodent, and that there's, it's another viral disease that we're going to learn a lot about. Um, you know, has it changed somewhat? Has there been some mutations? It's certainly not like in the COVID line, which, you know, seems to change, close every Tuesday. But, um, you know, has something changed that makes it more transmissible in, in humans? And also, um, you know, to me, it's, it, you see something that was there, that's that's a long time ago, since 1972, and, and just the way uh, that, it, that viruses sometimes enter our environment and that we always therefore have to be vigilant, and we always have to be, you know up on it and educated. And I think what was wonderful about the WHO session was it was people from all across the world, and the African pers- uh, perspective was presented, and um, an update was given on the cases that, uh, you know, the wonderful sharing that, is, that happens in the community, on, on the cases that, that, uh, that have been seen. And so, so there was discussions mainly around that.
3: Was there, has there been any suggestion? Um, there has been suggestion in Canada by some groups that, Canada's been slow to react to this. did you see any of that in, from your no, perspective?
7: No, and I think I think that, you know, and, and sometimes I think that's fair talking. People are worried and they're afraid, and so then they, they tend to lash out. I think we all do that. Um, but I think, you know, um, this was not a vaccine, and maybe some of the, you know, is that confusion. Why is Montreal got vaccine and St. John's doesn't have vaccine? When there's outbreaks in Montreal, Vancouver, and, and as always in Canada, we share where we we need it, and I have no, no doubt that should, should we need vaccine next week, that I would be able to get it in the quantities that we would need for our... To start our campaign, you know, so so I think um, I think that's where it comes from that people, but you don't keep a vaccine for something that's a bioterrorist threat. You don't keep a large amounts, right? So, but I think so. I think sometimes that's just a misunderstanding and, and fear.
8: So you- this case is coming uh, like last week was Pride Week, so an oppor- you know an opportunity where the LGBTQ community would have been doing an extra amount of mingling. How concerned are you that we may end up seeing uh, more spread because of that?
7: Um, in, we'll, we're obviously going to be watching and, and uh, you know and, uh, and and working with the community. But uh, you know, I, I wasn't really surprised, uh, Peter, that this that we got a case and and, uh, and um, you know because of activities all across the world, really, and, and the international travel and how mobile people are.
0: You just
3: said something. I want to clarify. You said bio What,
7: so, so I think, you know, that smallpox has been eradicated since, I yeah. think it's 1982, but the, we, we, we keep vaccine because if ever there was a bioterrorist threat. So there are people in the, in the country that have smallpox, so the military would have smallpox, smallpox vaccination would have continued in that group, but for the rest of us, since it's been eradicated since 1982, so I was born before 1982.
8: And just to be sure, sorry. That, that's not how
7: this happened. Or, oh no no okay. no no, okay. no right. certainly not. No, that's
8: why his vaccines not. are around. No,
7: so 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 you know in Africa, um, this is an illness that happens when you know um, cases are from bitten from a small rodent. It's 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 mice. It's small mammals, squirrels, different types of squirrels, and uh, and that get or or eating of a meat that of, of infected animal that wasn't properly cooked. So that's been the um, transmission in in Africa, and uh, so obviously somebody who got it that way and then that's right
9: sure. uh you mentioned uh the infectious period being around two to four weeks um, in other places, have there been any you know longer cases or long-term effects beyond you know when the rash ends?
7: No. Or- so that's another thing. I mean, it's not uh, one thing that um, because there's two clays, two different ones. There's one from the Congo. There's one from West West, West Africa. One being more severe than the other with a higher mortality, and the uh, Western African one is the one that is now transmitting, and that has um, you know mi- milder symptoms, and it's and it's basically once you're once you're um, well. Uh, you know, finished and, and, the lesions have resolved, you're well again. And, uh, so we haven't seen, uh, you know, we've seen hospitalizations for pain because the lesions can be very painful and, but very few hospitalizations for other, um, you know, so it's certainly not as severe as COVID.
9: And when you, uh, and so public health, you know, now that we have the first probable case, what is public health doing, uh, I guess, to share information, to make sure people are prepared for this?
7: Well, um, Thankfully, we have you guys, so that's uh, why I'm here this morning. And we have a website which we have launched um, and, and launched uh, um, earlier this week, just in time as as it is. Um, and you know, like, NTV, re- kindly reached out to me yesterday, be, just before this, and asked me would I do an interview on monkeypox. So, and we'll we'll will keep uh, you know answering people's questions and uh, and giving you know PSAs to the public, so um, we can educate them about monkeypox.
3: So, at the simplest level, just what, what's your advice for people to prevent themselves, to protect themselves?
7: So, my simplest level, because I'm a public health physician is you know wash your hands um, you know uh, and uh, and you know clean those surfaces that the things we've kind of gotten used to at COVID that we're quite uh, quite good at now and that if you've been in contact with somebody who has a, who has monkeypox that you follow our guidelines which are all on our website that if if you think you've had contact to contact your healthcare provider or to uh, to contact eight one one and also then to support the to support any family or friends who uh, may have contacted monkeypox to uh, to respect their privacy to support them in isolation we all know (laughs) there's probably not one person in this room who doesn't know how hard isolation is we've probably all been isolated from COVID and uh, and to support people in that and also non-judgmental I think COVID's taught us an awful lot um, you know how judgmental people were about who caught COVID in the beginning and then uh, you know then there was all of us at some point so I I, I really want to stress that that, that you know, and Newfoundland does such a wonderful job about supporting people who have a virus and, and not judging them, and uh, because viruses, you know, they don't make any distinctions. They just they just, you know, find who they can, and uh, and, and, uh, and and that's the bottom line.
8: I want to ask you, there was uh, a gentleman, Len Tooley, who was on uh Toronto Star podcast. He contracted monkeypox, and he's been an advocate to sharing information. Yeah. He said on that podcast that he was talking to a Newfoundlander who had been at Toronto Pride, contracted monkeypox, but hadn't reported it, or essentially had just isolated because didn't have a doctor, didn't, didn't have an access to be able to, you know, an easy outlet to be able to go and get that information and get tested. How big of a concern is that for you? And you know, can you explain what sort of access public health is going to try and make available for people who may not be sure where to go? Yeah,
7: and Peter, I'm always sorry to hear about a case like that because, and I know uh, you know, uh, people can be feel a bit paralyzed and not know what to do. So certainly, this is one of the reasons why we really wanted to reach out. Uh, To the press and to the population via the press, and also, you know, um, why we've also put up the website so that gives somebody somewhere they can go and get information where they don't even have to speak to anybody, and um, and we also, you know, have uh, have reached out to physicians, and we've, you know, that's I think the first reach out to physicians was probably in May to say, you know, because we need them to be vigilant, we need them to understand monkeypox. I mean, it's not a normal thing you find in Canada, so we really that education piece is key, and that if somebody does doesn't have a physician that they call eight one one and eight one one has also been briefed on what monkeypox is and, and what they should do. And we have great support through the hospital through our infectious disease um, specialists, which we're very fortunate to, to collaborate with um, also.
8: Uh, t- sorry, Peter. How, how fatal, like I know that it can in, in some cases be fatal, I think I read. How, just how, like, what percentage? So there's done. been
7: no fatalities okay. in any of the cases in Canada. I think now, and I'm going to pull this out of my ha- head, which is a scary place sometimes, but I think there's been 16,000 cases, and, um, and uh, there have been no deaths in, in, the, in the current outbreak. There have been five deaths in Africa, unfortunately, <clears throat> and, and sometimes the concern there is that the health care, yeah, standard, you know, the healthcare access isn't always the same. 16, but in terms that, of the, the current cases, you know, there have not been any death. There that, have been hospitalizations, mainly due to pain control.
3: That's sixteen thousand. That's totality. That's total. Yeah, and
7: I shouldn't pull a number out of my head like Sorry. that. can we confirm that? Well, yeah, that's the total number of cases since
3: it's existed. Since, I
7: guess yeah. Really, you know, the oh. outbreak started in about May.
3: And currently, it's seven. Oh,
7: 16, yeah. You better check that for me.
3: And currently, seven forty-five was the number. Yes, in From Canada. So
7: there's Canada is is one country. Europe has been involved, right? Several several countries in Europe. The United States has seen outbreaks. So so there, that would be me trying to give you the total number.
8: I, I want to ask about reporting. Uh, how often is the public going to get updates? Is this a case of is it, there going to be a weekly? You know, if the numbers increase, are we going to find out about each individual? Is it going to be a weekly update? How will people know if they want to understand? how much of the disease is spreading in this
7: province? So that is something I'll bring back to my group and uh, the executive, and we'll make a decision on that. I don't know, I can't tell you that yet. We haven't thought about that. We've just really thought about first case, need to talk to you right away, and uh, and you know had wanted to talk to you yesterday about, then I'm not surprised that it was coming. So we will certainly let you know about that.
3: And. Uh turnaround on testing compared to COVID? Is it the same sort of yes, time so, so,
7: so, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, and it will be like COVID. Our testing is, I'm sure is going to get better and better all the time as, as you know, what we've done with COVID with so many brilliant people in Canada working on something. But right now, any test, any test we do, that goes to the National Microbiology Lab.
3: And the turnaround uh, for-
7: So I can't tell you exactly what the turnaround is. I'll be able to tell you in uh, next week.
8: And, and so are we developing the capabilities to do tests locally here? Is it just that it has to be verified by the lab as well, or do we not have the capability
7: at all? So right now, we don't have the capability, but that will be looked at for Sure. sure. Okay.
1: And there you have it. That's the acting chief medical officer of health, Dr. Roseanne Sevier, discussing the first probable case of monkeypox here in the province. So as you know, the topics are up to you here on the program. We are going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to be speaking with the liberal member for Virgil LaPoil. He's the minister of industry, energy, and technology. Talk about the fact that the government is now open to proposals for wind-based projects. Lots of questions. We'll hear from the minister right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As advertised, join us online. Number one is the liberal member for Virgil LaPoil. He's also the minister of industry, energy, and technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing well. Back on the West Coast. Good stuff. So, you know, this is a fairly new issue here in this province because of the, of course, legislated ban against wind projects, but still a fair bit of unknowns out there. Some of the summary statements have been made that opening up all Crown lands to wind-based proposals. People like, for instance, down in the Port of Port Peninsula have already pushed back because of proximity to residential communities. So what are some of the buffer zones for communities?
0: So just, I guess, a couple things to start generally on this is that you know, when we announced this back in April 5th, we said, "Look, we will be working on developing the different policies, whether it's crown land, the environmental side, how are we going to do uh, land nominations, things like that." And so that was the biggest part of going ahead this week, was providing some certainty to interested parties about the process going forward. We've been working quite hard on that. It's you know, it's a novel process here, uh, but thankfully there was you know precedents to follow you know elsewhere in Canada and around the world. So one of the parties of that and I mentioned this in the press conference I did is that while we were working on that obviously we have had proponents go out and talk about their their desires, what the the different things that they're going to do and the reality is that that has left questions with people that I simply couldn't answer, anybody couldn't answer because the process wasn't done so part of this going forward will be an education process, a consultation process, like when you talk about setbacks as it relates to wind turbines from houses, that is something that will be known prior to any actual bid happening. Communities want to know that, people want to know that, and I think that's incumbent on us to provide that information. So there is, yes, there's absolutely still work to do, but starting it off now gives actual interested companies the opportunity to say, look, this is our high level plan. This is the place we want to go, which we can then take and analyze and figure out where as a province do we want to make the land available.
1: So the deadline for submissions is the 1st of October. The first round of bids for the competitive bids for land. So are we talking about selling crown land? Because not all projects may survive. The viability will be subjective. And so are we selling crown land or releasing the land?
0: Well, these are the things that are absolutely being considered. One thing I can say is that I don't think any of us have any interest in disposing of valuable crown land without getting a return for the people that own it, which is obviously all of us. So there obviously it will contain conditions. That's a part of it, and it would be a part of any Crownland uh, release as it relates to industry. So right now, they have until October 1st to put this information to us. We then estimate we're going to take you know, just over two months, we're saying mid-December, to analyze, review, and there's still a lot of work we need to figure out, including what are the bid criteria. We've said it will not just be who puts in the most money. We, we want to go at, and again, it wasn't first come, first serve. We want to go with what is the best value. But that means companies are gonna to need to know what are the things we look for as it relates to value. So it'll be business plan, job opportunities, what is the R&D side of this, diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, women in, in the sector, a, a women's employment planners, all these different things. So we're working on that within department, within government, I know I'm gonna to have to go out and look elsewhere and get some resources because we're, we're moving, as I said, we're trying to do this as quickly as possible because the fact is we're not the only ones that wanna be in this space. There's Nova Scotia's moving Quickly on this, other jurisdictions. But at the same time, when you do a new process, you want to do everything you can not to fool it up.
1: Not all of these proposals will have the same business model. Obviously, there's a distinct difference between putting up a wind farm to power up a commercial or industrial entity versus the proposal in Argentia and out in the Stevenville with deep water ports, access to wind, access to water, electrolysis to create hydrogen for export. Are they the preferred uh, proposals? Because others that may indeed sell excess power back to the grid has implications to hydro bills associated Absolutely. with Muskrat Falls, for instance.
0: Absolutely. So. The but the fact is we've heard from all, all manner of different opportunities and ideas, whether it's existing industrial operations wanting to talk about getting off diesel or you know off-grid communities wanting to get off that, people that want to sell back to the grid, or the biggest one that I feel uh, probably has the most value at the moment, which is hydrogen slash ammonia opportunities in Europe and other uh, venues. So a couple things here. One, we're still doing, Hydro's been doing two different studies, uh, resource adequacy study and a wind penetration study a wind integration which is basically what can we actually take into the grid that's unknown right now so for anybody who thinks that they're just going to set this up to sell into the grid that's not exactly you know possible right at the moment we have work to do but a lot of the real players who are coming at us with capital are talking about exploration of the different hydrogen opportunities which comes with obviously as you say land that's close to deep water ports of which we have a number uh and then you know the conversion and then the shipping to germany i mean that's the big interest right now that's who we're hearing a lot from uh very clearly we're hearing from them on their energy needs their transition needs so we see that as a great market but again the these companies are looking you know they have to do their own feasibility they have to figure out what is the scale going to be what do they need to do to make this happen and I will say Most of the jurisdictions we looked at they did this for the purpose of greening their grid and it was basically subsidized, whereas we see this primarily given the fact that we're fairly green, we're hoping to get greener with the advent someday of Muskrat Falls. We're hoping to see this mainly as a business opportunity with other opportunities to green industry and we'll see how it works in terms of bringing it into the grid and possible export.
1: I'm not going to ask you to presuppose the outcome of the analysis of the penetration issue and the electrical grid and ability to handle. As an isolated system prior to the maritime link, engineers will tell you about 10% uh, was the ability for the grid to handle wind power, of course, because there's some volatility and battery storage, which is obviously growing. But has anything really changed realistically. The 500 megawatt maritime link is full. It doesn't really give us any expanded opportunity for wind. So are we anticipating that it would be anywhere near ex- uh, pardon me, any excess beyond 10% because not a whole lot has changed.
0: It's a great question and uh, I'll go right back to the first thing you said, which is I don't want to presuppose. I can't presuppose because I, I truly don't know, which is why I and Hydra want to see that study. Has anything changed? I'm not aware. So, But the fact is, it's a real issue, as you say. It's something that we're very aware of, which again is why most of the most of the people coming in are talking about the the export opportunities using hydrogen and ammonia rather than just wind into the grid, which is a whole different ballgame.
1: Is the government willing to commit? And again, there's still a bunch of hypotheticals in play. But if we have big players with real money coming in, whether it be the John Risleys of the world, and they've got business models that has export markets elsewhere, can the government commit to not putting money behind these entities? Because if they can't fund their own business model and The economic upside here is vastly different than mining with the tax base created and the royalties flowing. Same with the oil and gas industry, maybe a little bit different than the fishery. But the economic uptick here is maybe some R&D, some upfront jobs in planning and the manufacturing, ongoing operations, probably not a whole lot of jobs. So can the government commit to not putting money behind any of these entities?
0: Well, what I would say to you is that's never been our mindset in any way, shape, or form. We've always seen this as companies need to come in and figure out how to make this economically and technically feasible for themselves. Uh, our, our goal is to figure out how do we get the best return for that resource. So we haven't talked about subsidization. It has not been a part of our conversation. There certainly hasn't been any commitment of that on any on any level. Uh, our big thing is obviously we want to figure you know what's the fiscal structure that we're working on in terms of the resource because we have to be realistic. If you price yourself out of the market, someone else will jump in. Uh, The other side is figuring out what are the benefits agreements going to be here in terms of employment and employment numbers. Uh, And you're right. I mean, the biggest part of this is in your construction phase. uh, The first three to five years after that is not a huge number. But again, that that's all vol- not volatile. That all changes too depending on the size and scope of a project. I mean I've had people talking about two hundred meg uh wind firm versus people talking about a gig plus. Those are two hugely different things with different capital costs and we'll have to consider each one uh differently but I think the biggest takeaway from all of this process, certainly what was forefront in my mind, was, look, we need something that's open, that people see it, they feel they're on the same playing field, that we haven't picked favorites, that we're giving everybody a chance. And at the end of the day, our considerations based on what do we feel is the best value. Uh, I certainly don't see myself... As like I, I see the benefit of this coming long after I'm done with politics. Uh, but I would like to know that I put something in place that will have value then rather than something that uh, is not seen po- uh, positively later on.
1: You talk about value and not wanting to price ourselves out of the ball game. What do you envision as the process to ensure that the sweet spot has been hit on value? Because you can say Nova Scotia is bullish on this and other entities up and down the uh, northeast coast of uh, the United States and Canada, but... Wind you can't really value, but you can certainly value deep water ports and proximity to market. So a port in Nova Scotia doesn't or shouldn't have the same value as a port on the island here because we're talking about the difference in the distribution of the hydrogen, for instance. So how do you hit the sweet spot on the value of the deep water and access to market? Because if I'm putting forward a business model, my transportation costs are near the top three of my considerations. So with proximity to market being such a massive one here, how do you hit the sweet spot?
0: that's, That's the million dollar question really is you know and that's what we need to figure out so there's and a number of things we uh, will do to try to figure out what the sweet spot is and one of them being looking elsewhere to see what's been done uh, having discussions currently to see what's being considered elsewhere uh, looking at where those markets are and who wants it uh, who's prepared to, uh, to you know come, <laughs> who's prepared to come to the plate but also keeping in mind you know we have a lot we feel we have a lot of strings like you say we have the proximity uh, we have the resource which is Recognizes you know best in class. We have a, we have the workforce here that I think can handle it. Uh, so we feel we have a really strong chance. But we also have to figure out what are those limitations. Some of them that we're going to figure out along this process. So like that that's the question. I cannot give an answer. Uh, but that's the reason now that we're putting in place a process that's going to allow us to hear from. Uh, you know proponents, here from other jurisdictions. I, again, I plan on discussing this with uh, European countries uh, very soon again to figure out what these needs and opportunities are. And then the goal is to take all this information and try to figure out where do we need to be to make this a reality and keeping in mind the fact that, again, this is new. It seems like it's ramping up. There's people that want to get into places with off-take agreements. Um, certainly Europe's uh, energy uh, crisis, we'll say, has changed a lot of things. has certainly sped things up. Uh, so there's a lot of different factors is the best I, I guess I can tell
1: you at this point. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with the Liberal member for Bergio LePoil. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology. Talk about the fact that the government is now open to proposals for wind-based projects. Lots of questions. We'll hear from the Minister right after this. Don't go away.
3: Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1pm 1 as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break.
1: Welcome back to the program as advertised. Join us on line number one is the Liberal member for Virgil Lapoil He's also the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. What have we done, if anything, at this moment in time to capture as much as we can in the R&D side? Because it's one thing for, again, I'll just use Mr. Risley's name because he's been in the headlines with a proposal for a project here. So have we done anything with TechNL, NL, Corps, the Marine Institute and otherwise? Because if we can capture the R&D, that comes with a proprietary value. That's an IP. Absolutely. That's something we can monetize in the future as opposed to a company brings it, keeps it. Uh, stows it away, they experience all the growth and the monetization of it, and we get nothing, you know, based on other than tax-based jobs and whatnot. Have we done anything to ensure R&D Absolutely. can be kept here?
0: Absolutely. So there's a bunch of different parts to this. So along this consultation part, we've worked very closely with EcoNext here in the province. We work very closely with Energy L. So they were consulted the entire way, uh, and, and they have been a part of this, and basically they're in fact, they're some of the best ec- uh, expertise I think we have here is having these people that represent industry and academia And just certainly knowledgeable people and people within the industry. And everybody sees this. They're they're very interested in figuring out what their opportunities are. Uh, The other side of this, again, I've said this, I don't know how many times I've said in the last number of weeks and months when I speak to people, is that we have world-class learning institutions here, whether it's Marine, MUN, uh, Grenfell, or private colleges. They need to be a part of this because, and again, this has been mentioned specifically by multiple proponents. Um, R&D is something we need to work on. So when you're building an industry, you need to build that expertise. No different than when we started the oil industry many years ago. It took a long time to build that expertise and that was one of the tough parts when we were going through that tough time is that we were in jeopardy of losing that. So absolutely that will be a part of the value process uh, and we're going to listen to see what people have in mind. Some people are very, I, I know proponents themselves have been reaching out and talking to these institutions, talking about ideas about well, what can we create, what can we do in terms of, uh, you know, core science Offerings for different R&D size. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on, but absolutely you're right, it'll be a part of this.
1: Just for clarification, for Crown lands and access to different types of areas of land, are all the WERAC protected zones and other protected zones already off of the agenda, off of the menu?
0: Well, all I would say to you is this. Like any Crown land proposal, whether it's for this or for anything else, it goes through a pretty stringent process. Some people would say it takes too long. Uh, But the reality is that's absolutely factored into this. Uh, so i i don't personally deal with that but that department ffa as well as environment and climate change are a part of this so obviously we will be considering uh, environmentally sensitive lands plate, and again we have a you know whether it comes to wildlife whether it comes to our plant life whether it comes to just different uh, community factors all of that will be rolled into this and be a part of it uh I'm, I'm a big fan of development but i don't think i'm a fan of development at all costs shunning the, the beauty of this province that we're you know that we, we all know is there
1: Uh, Let's move on to uh, another couple of quick ones before we run out of time. Has there been any advancement on the file wondering who's going to pay the monies associated with the the economic protective zone that is not part of our 200 miles out of Beta Nord? We know based on a UN... uh, that there's going to be somebody's going to have to pay the feds, us, Ecuador, their partners. Do we have any better understanding what's happening there?
0: No, there hasn't been a whole lot of movement on that. Myself, uh, I hosted the uh, Energy and Mines Ministers a few weeks back in St. John's, and the federal minister was there. And this was one of the questions. Uh, we've indicated as a province our position, which is that we we don't feel that we should have to do anything here. Uh, I think the feds are going to push back on that, and, prob- and again, whether they try to push it back on us or on the Operators, uh, but I can't say that it has advanced any at this time. It seems like it's gone uh, a little bit quiet, so nothing new to really report.
1: And significant monies when push comes to shove.
0: Oh, it's it's not a small amount, which is why it will be important and is not going away. But there's just nothing new to uh, put out there on it.
1: Uh, reading between the lines, uh, the federal minister Stephen Gibo he was really quite firm and said things after uh, the environmental assessment was released for in orders that it's going to be tough with the new parameters to pass anything through the impact assessment agency of Canada little bit of change of tone coming from the minister now, flexibility associated with the industry to hit the emissions targets. Did you read anything into it as it relates to further proposals and production opportunities here, or what what did you make of it?
0: Well, I guess what I can say is that I haven't had specific conversations with the ministers on it, so anything I'm saying is something I surmise. I think there was a lot of pressure when Beta Nord was approved, Uh, a lot of pushback, obviously, on that. Uh, But I think we also had to be pragmatic and practical to realize that we have a role to play in the global energy situation, and that's why I think there's more a growing recognition that we have an opportunity here to be a part of it. But putting in mind stringent standards, I think Beta Nord has the opportunity to be uh, a world leader when it comes to uh, you know emission reduction, and they're saying that has to be a part of what's going forward. We've said all along; I mean, our position never changed. Why should we be punished here uh, for having a resource? Why would we step out of that market and let other less stringent market uh, countries? Step in there. We have a role to play. Maybe there's a growing realization that uh, that you know we think we're right here. Uh, But look, when it comes to this, we just we continue to put our head down, move forward, work with operators. Right now, the big thing with Beta Nord, I guess, with Equinor is, uh, you know, f- trying to figure out benefits agreements, which is a, an ongoing process, uh, and keeping in mind that we want to extract the best value from the resource that belongs to us.
1: How many, pro- how many proponents came forward to operate at Polar? Uh, you know, we heard a couple of entities come from Scandinavia and, of course, local DF Barnes and otherwise. How many came forward, and how did we land there?
0: I don't have an exact number on that. We've had a number come forward. In fact, we've had a lot of people express interest in taking it over or taking it off our hands Uh, but we've never gotten to a point i think where we feel that letting it go would be in the province's best interest it's a huge resource i think it's going to be especially important uh in the next number of years uh there is work planned uh going on right out there now. I know DF Barnes has been doing some, so I I don't have an exact number. I wouldn't know. I'd probably have to check with uh, OilCo on that to see it, uh, but certainly it's an, it is an it is an asset, and I don't think it's one that we are prepared to move from, uh, uh, likely, we'll say. Uh,
1: last one, and I apologize, but I'm going to bounce back to Win for a second. Can you tell us that the priority will be given to projects that are much more in line with hydrogen, electrolysis, and exportation? Because let's say, for instance, a commercial I'll just pick one, a mine, which is power intensive. They pur- put forward a proposal, put up a wind farm, and the possibility for unused power to come back to the grid. Everything that is not about hydrogen for export could indeed have an implication regarding rate mitigation at Muskrat Falls, because no matter how we slice it, less people using, less entities buying hydropower from, from Muskrat in particular means I pay more per kilowatt hour. It's a funny old arrangement that we got ourselves into. So can they be put down the priority list? Because that's probably going to be most unwelcome by the Right there.
0: so a few things Number one, you're absolutely right. Even like nothing has been simple moving forward with this, with the situation we find ourselves in as it relates to muskrat and future opportunities and, and you know what, what people of province have to pay for that. But two things, I guess, coming out of that. Number one, uh, we have to do a thorough analysis on whatever comes in the door. We will look at all of it, keeping in mind value. And that will be one factor here. Certain ones will have more value than others. What are the pros and what are the cons? What are we getting out of that? The other side of this is that we still have a lot of work to do. We're waiting to hear back from Hydro to figure out what we can actually do here. So I guess the takeaway is, look, you're, I absolutely take your point. We've talked about that, about the cannibalization of people creating power and then in turn repair is going to have to pay more. That's absolutely a factor. And it's that balance between trying to figure out what our opportunities are, to figure out what it's going to cost us, uh, to, to figure out. you know We know that there's a huge demand, especially in Labrador, to green the operation that the shareholders and that the, the, the market wants that green industry now they want to change from diesel so all that will factor in and all i can tell you is that you know the main point here is that we have to have a process going forward well everybody will see where our heads are i think we started that the other day and in fact i've gotten pretty good reaction from proponents and from others saying you know what we like the idea of the industry most people aren't opposed to the industry most people are saying how does it affect me and that's a valid point that we need to work on answering and that's all going to happen so a lot of work left to do this was just another sort of solid step forward getting there
1: appreciate the time this morning thank you
0: thank you very much patty take care
1: you too bye-bye sandra parsons he is the minister of industry energy and technology uh okay let's go and take a break when we come back tons of time to speak with you don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number three helen you're on the air
6: Oh, good morning, Patty. morning to you. Uh, I'm a first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So if I seem a bit nervous, well, (laughs) I'm glad to bear with me.
1: Take your time. You go right ahead.
6: I'm I'm calling in response to this lady, uh, Margaret. Her son went missing. I was listening to her there yesterday morning.
10: Yeah,
1: Margaret Tucker. Yes. Mm -hmm.
6: Well... uh, Response to, to her call, like, I just want to relate to her. And, um, my son went missing. We didn't know where he was for 10 years. We didn't know if he was dead or alive, so, but and, anyway, uh, I think the reason why that he did that was because uh, about 10 years. Prior to that, some uh, someone had uh, had uh, ran ran him ran him down and broke his ankle, and he was very disturbed and upset about it and everything. He said, "He over said, it was the guy or lady took away what bit of life he had.' He said because he couldn't get out and about because he loved the outdoors and walking and riding his bike and um, you know anything got to do with the outdoors." So anyway he called he called at that time he called my daughter in Ontario and he said uh, he said, I got to leave, he said, so he said, uh, I'll, he said, I'll let the rest of the family know, but nobody else knew or heard about him since then, Then, right? He said he had to go, and we had a contact number, he said, tell, tell the rest of the family not to contact that number, right? So we we didn't. So we 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 respected his wishes, right?
1: Okay, it's just this is a fascinating story. So he left, and for ten years you didn't hear from him. You didn't know if he was alive or dead. No. Where did he go? Uh,
6: well, that we we right now we 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 still don't really know. Well, uh, he he was very very confused and disturbed, and he was very. Uh, very in a lot of pain, like emotionally and physically, right? With his broken ankle, everything ankle and everything he had to go and and get help. Help. Plus, he had uh, a problem with, with drinking a bit. But he he told me he said we celebrate. He said it's thirteen years. years he said since he had a drink, right? And. Uh, so like I said, we we didn't had no idea where he where was until the 18th of May. My phone rang, and uh, and I picked it up, and I answered, and I saw a 613, because it all was in the back of my mind, because we there was nothing else we could do, only keep praying to God or whatever, that he would phone or show up, or somebody would see him or whatever, right? And uh, so, anyway, I saw this 613, and I don't remember the other numbers. I said, hello, anyway, because I don't I don't usually answer uh, numbers that I don't know because of so many scams those days. Right. So I said, hello, anyway, and this fellow said, hello. And then I didn't recognize the voice, and then he said, uh, is Helen there, please? And, well, I said— uh, who wants to know? He said, Mom, is it? He is it, said, is it, it's me. That's because it is said name. I'm not allowed to say the names on off the Well, you can
1: say the name of your own son if you want.
6: Okay. He said, Mom, is it, It's Lewis." I said, what? But we were on the phone then for a bit, I suppose, close to two hours. But but he tried to tell me, but like I say, you're trying to put all those years, you know, graphs all those years into one hour or two. You know what I mean? But I don't remember too much of the conversation. So then I called the family. Then I let them all know. And we were all so glad, honest to God. we were.
1: I can only imagine. So where is he now? Have you been in the same room with him? What, what's going on?
6: Oh, no, no, no. He's not here. He's still on the mainland.
1: But you haven't seen him since he reconnected via the telephone?
6: Uh, I've seen a picture of him.
1: And what's his life been? does he have a family or no. what, what's he doing?
6: No he no he don't don't ha he don't have a family, no. No, he he's a, he's on his own, he's a bachelor. How old is he when he left? Uh when when he left to go away well, he's fifty three now.
1: It's my age.
6: Uh your age. Uh when he left to go away, so he's been up there for twenty odd years. I would have to be about 33, right? Okay. 33
1: when he left. <sighs> Man. So, how were you able to not use that contact number that you had floating around? I, see, I know you said you wanted to respect his wishes, but as the mom and, and, and as a dad, I'm not so sure I would have had the emotional strength to not call that number, to not try to find out what's going on. How did you resist? Um, well, his
6: father's not alive in a way. His father died eleven years ago. Okay. Um, well, well, he told us, but well, he never called me. He called his sister in Ontario, and and he said, "Don't call that number," he said, anymore, because he he had to go. Like I said, we didn't know for sure what was going on, right? We were, you know, we didn't know what was going on. Okay. We were kind of scared to call that number. Really,
1: I, I I get it. I wasn't in your shoes, so I don't really know, and nor do I know yeah. if I should have asked that question. That's right.
6: You got to walk in someone's shoes oh, to know,
1: right? Hundred percent. So, are there any plans to for him to get on a plane or you to get on a plane and to see your son again and to oh, hold I, I, well, him? And I,
6: I'm going soon now, and everything when all this and everything calms down, maybe 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 now in the fall. Okay. But um, but he, he got no plans to come home, maybe for a visit, because, like he always said, uh, that's his home now, right?
1: Yeah, I can understand that. You know, I've had one of my siblings who's been in Ontario since uh, they left for university 30 years ago or more, so I understand that concept. This is truly a fascinating story. It really is. It's mind blowing, <laughs> to be honest.
6: We, we call it a miracle because, you know, never say never. And like this relate to this woman, Margaret. I mean, never, ever give up hope, right? it's always in your mind because I, I used to be well, I was grasping at straws and it's, it's the worst feeling that a, a parent or a sister or a brother can have because I, I would listen to the news and oh, they found a body in this place and that place oh my God the, you know, the anguish that you go through then, right, you know
1: there'd be a big hole in your heart that's
6: right, a big hole in your heart
1: Helen, uh, thank you very much. And I'm sure, you know, for Margaret, I can't speak for her, but she's holding out all the hope that Brandon will come home. And so this story is, I guess, just an example of how that hope can be very real. That's great. I, I really appreciate the time and the call. Would you like to say or tell us anything else this morning, Helen?
6: Uh well like I said, this is you know, Lewis like he is a very is a very, very kind person and he's kind to everybody and and you know, he would take the shirt his shirt off his back or to, if you never had one or give give you his plate of food if you never had any you know? It's a very, very but but we prayed, at least I prayed anyway, so you know, to me, it's, it's like, like, like America.
1: Sounds like it. Uh, well, thanks again for this, and uh, good luck Good luck, and enjoy your trip when everything calms down and you make your way to Ontario maybe this fall. That would be an extraordinary uh, sight to see, to, sight to behold. Oh, so yes. good luck, and I wish you nothing but the best, Helen. You're always welcome to join us, maybe even after you and Lewis reunite so we can see and hear how it went
6: yes but uh, his sister you know that she lives in in ontario too because she lives five hours away she and and her brother-in-law wanted to see him oh yeah she you no, know, she had to go so oh, yeah like i said we love him and he we know that even though he never contacted but he had issues that he had to take care of himself and he took care of it right
1: well i guess that's the good news and Uh, Extraordinary tale. Really nice speak with you this morning, Helen.
6: And right now, he's a different person when you talk to him.
1: I can only imagine. Yeah, Mm -hmm. of course.
6: Yes, but but thanks for taking my call. And I hope that if Margaret is listening or if her son is listening, pick up the phone and call your mom or call somebody from your family.
10: 100%.
1: Thank you, Helen. (laughs) Thank you, too. Take care. Bye-bye. Now... That is something else. Uh, Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Doug Pawson from Inland Homelessness St. John's about the most recent survey here in the city about the landlord's want or intention to offer affordable housing and how they prioritize who would be the best renter in their mind. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay, whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Sean, you're on the air.
10: Uh, good morning, I uh, Just wanted to call there this morning. Uh, I found a man's wallet. Um, his name is David James. Uh, I tried to reach him. Uh, he's from Burgess. I found it in the Mount Pearl area down uh, on the tracks this morning. I have all of his stuff here in his wallet driver's license and whatnot. Um, if he's listening or if someone from Burgess area uh, knows this man, uh, if he can reach out to me, 685-5708.
1: 685-5708?
10: Yeah, I got his whole wallet here with all of his bank stuff, everything
1: well, he'll be, be looking forward getting to getting that back. David James. I'm sure, he's
10: still looking forward. I would be, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. So, David James, if you're a listener, anyone in the British area might know David. Uh, Sean found your wallet. Uh, it's six eight five five seven zero eight to be reunited. Good on you, Sean. Good man.
10: And it, I found it in between, say, the Commonwealth Avenue. And coarse hand drive uh, the railway tracks here. Okay. Uh, in that area this morning, first thing.
1: Bravo! Good for you. Uh, good on you for doing this, man. Appreciate so it. So
10: Hopefully he hears us and he's not panicking, and uh, he can reach out and we can uh, get it back to the rightful owner.
1: We got your name. Or, uh, pardon me, your name and your number here once more time. David James, or any of his buddies in and around 685 six eight five five seven zero eight to get your wallet back. Appreciate this. I Sean. think that's
10: the other line, dear. <laughs> now I'm with you, someone now, Patty. Appreciate it. Good stuff. Be safe, everybody. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. There you go.
1: That's good stuff. Uh, let's go to line number one. Let's take a more morning the the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. That's Doug Possum. Morning, Doug. You're on the air.
11: Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you doing?
1: Not too bad this morning. Thanks How about you.
11: Good, good. Thanks. Just uh, lots of conversation about, uh, you know, some landlord uh, surveys and conversations about the lack of uh, availability of affordable housing going on that you're hearing about, I'm sure, lots
1: of these days too, eh? 100%. You know, I'm not really sure what to make of the survey, to be honest with you. Now, you've got boots on the ground, you're on the front line, so to speak, so 53% of respondents of the 249 landlords. Now, it's worth pointing out that these are small and medium-sized landlords. You know, they have basement, apartment, or maybe a couple of uh, rental units. These are not the big players with the huge numbers of of units uh, under their control, so just put that out there. But 53% of them said they weren't interested in offering what we'll call affordable housing, even though we know that's a very complex term. So they say that their number one concern was renting to people with pets. Uh, students were number three, and in the middle there were folks on people are uh, people that were on income support. What do you take away from it?
11: Yeah, well, I'm glad you sort of put that little caveat in the front there that it's not necessarily the big landlords. These are a lot of folks with basement apartments, but, but nonetheless a vital, um, you know, sort of cog in the private market supporting folks who, who need affordable housing. Um, you know, I think the one thing that we want to take away from the, from the comments and the feedback, which which uh, is you know pretty uh, helpful and insightful, is we just we don't want people to be discriminating based on things like your source of income, if you're an income support recipient or your family status, your employment status, your ace race or your gender, or whether you're a student. So like, there's a lot of things there. we just you know we want to make sure that we're we're following the Human Rights Act when it comes to to renting to folks and not discriminating. And I think that's uh, something that I took from that uh, that that particular question in the survey itself. Awesome.
1: what do we do with the numbers because like for instance if I have a basement apartment it's hard to envision somebody or an entity or a politician or a government telling me who I should and should not rent to so what do you want landlords to think about when they hear these numbers what do you want the general public to think about because it's one thing to have the numbers it's another thing to how to discern them and how to mm-hmm. use them and what changes can be made because of them I don't, I'm not even sure where to go with this
11: yeah, I mean it's a really it's a really complex situation. Like you like you were saying, like when we when we even just think about what affordable housing is, you know, there's there's the common definition which is around 30% of somebody's uh, before tax income. So if you're somebody on income support, you're you're the the income that you're receiving on a monthly basis, you you couldn't afford an affordable housing unit in that based on that definition 20 years ago. So, so, when we think about what affordability looks like, it, it, it's quite different. And for folks, especially folks who are lower income, um, you know, women in, uh, with children, for example, um, newcomers, we want to make sure that they have the resources to find the appropriate housing for them, the most suitable housing. And so, when we look in St. John's in particular, and, and this may bear out in other parts of the province, but there's high rates of home ownership. And so what that means, just to start, even before the pandemic and even, you know, sort of the last year or so where we've seen this really intense pressure on the housing market, the rental market, is um, high rates of home ownership, already limited rates of, of private rental market uh, units available, and we don't see a lot of builds coming in to the market to, to offset the increased demand. So that just forces prices up as, as demand increases and the supply continues to dwindle, um, prices go up. And so folks who are... You know, on the lower uh, income thresholds, um, you know, maybe on income support, for example, like they're getting squeezed out um, faster than, than anybody else would.
1: And the definition that we're currently using is uh, 30% of the household's pre-tax income to be associated with housing. So that's, that adds up to a pretty paltry sum for many, especially when you talk about the value of rental properties at this moment in time. That's so right. if we can't mandate that someone rent to somebody, you know, and there are protections in place for discrimination, but how about trying to address it and understand it? So if they say that they're worried about damages, lost rent the rising costs that we're all facing, are there things we can do to add that layer of assurance or comfort that this can be uh, dealt with, whether it be by the municipality or the province or whatever the case may be, to remove some of those barriers that may be real or not real, but they're in place, perceived or otherwise. So do you think there's a play on that side that we can make to make things easier and better?
11: Yeah, for sure. I think, like, I would look at one of the programs that we run at End Homes of St. John's called Home Connect. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we do to support landlords is provide a, uh, a mitigation fund if they're in case of damages. Um, and that's just really there to offset risk, perceived or otherwise. Um, and I know for the folks that uh, the landlords that we've been supporting and the tenants across the community that are being supported by community agencies. Um, we rarely tap into that fund, and so the, the idea that having that a little bit extra assurance is there is great. Um, but you know, we we rarely tap into it, and we're you know those landlords who are working with our, with Home Connect, um, you know, they're renting to folks who have uh, who are exiting homelessness and who have housing uh, precarious housing history, and so you know the risk on that is probably perceived to be greater than, you know, renting to somebody uh, with uh, with children or pets, um, and we rarely tap into that. Not to say that damages don't occur, but, you know, if there's something that could be created more broadly, that, 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 that helps. And, and the reason I say that is because we're asking private landlords, and oftentimes, like you mentioned before, you know, like mom-and-pop landlords, to, to take on the, the role of providing a public good like affordable housing. So, you know, how we can support them more broadly uh, to sustain that is is really vital because we're not replacing it with, you know, um, public or social housing stock at anywhere near the same rate, and nor do we necessarily only want all of that as an option either. So, yeah, those are are supports that could be put in place, that could be, you know, tied in with the municipality or with the provincial government um, for those moments.
1: You hear some, like, for instance, uh, Councillor Ravencroft at the City of St. John's, looking at the bright side, is that it's not that 53% of respondents don't want to rent to the aforementioned groups, but 47% do. Is there a matter of, you know, sometimes we'll see a story where our landlord will post a picture of the damages that their unit suffered, and that seeps into the psyche of so many other landlords, and all of a sudden they're more risk-averse than they would have been in the past. Is there the need to establish a communication network so that we can really have the fundamentals on the table as opposed... The perceptions that one group or another is going to beat up your unit.
11: Yeah, and that's it. I mean, there's no, there's no one group that that could be, you know, painted with such generalization. There's lots of folks. Who we've been uh, aware of who are fairly affluent who cause damage to their rental units. So, you know, it doesn't, it's not unique to one particular population, like somebody sure. who's a student or somebody I can support. I think, the, I think the challenge here, you know, in that survey where there was the, the 47% who are interested in uh, and able to provide affordable rental units, is finding ways to make that, that affordability component uh, an option. And so, you know, we do have access to rental subsidies for folks um, through the through the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. Um, there are ways to make it more affordable through through municipal levers within the city of St. John's, for example. So, you know, finding ways to make that affordable is really important. And I'll give you just some context. So, like, if you're a minimum wage earner working full time in the course of a month, based on the current definition of affordability, your your rent would would be about $650. That. That's uh, I, I don't know who can find a place for $650, one bedroom bachelor or or larger, um, and that's for folks who are working minimum wage or and even slightly higher. So you know this is a really big component of having a healthy, resilient city. So we'll have to work with the city, the province, and Fed to really figure out ways to make make it affordable and, and an option for for landlords to provide because the housing, the current housing market just doesn't. Uh, um, lend itself for those conditions
1: to be successful. We are talking about a less than ideal setting for $650 and everyone knows it to be true so uh, again I say this many times I don't know how people that make ends meet with certain uh, revenue or income thresholds but then you add in with the explosion of everything we see in touch and pay for including rent and it's just you know even with these rental numbers and so many units have been lost the vacancy rate gone from 7 to about 3.1 whether it be landlords cashing out or long-term rentals have been converted to Airbnb, we've got to attend to it soon because even like I spoke with uh, Laura Winters from Stella Circle, I think it was yesterday, if people simply want to boil it down to dollars and cents, if indeed folks end up as homeless people and have to turn to emergency organizations and or shelters, it costs us more in the long run. It's in our collective best interest to understand Mm -hmm. this and figure it out. A night in the shelter is far more expensive than a night in an affordable housing unit managed by a community group or municipality.
11: Absolutely. And, and for all those reasons that you just listed, that's, that's driving that downward pressure on the availability of, of, of rental market, private rental market units. And we just don't see the builds. We don't see the builds happening at the speed and pace that's required to offset the loss of that, those, those, those units. So, you know, it forces, especially those who are just trying to make ends meet into very uh, precarious and vulnerable situations.
1: Uh, Rob, it's good to have you on the show, Doug. Thanks for this. Thanks again, Patty. Appreciate it. That's Doug Boston. He's the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. Time for a break. When we go back, we're talking mackerel. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, I think it was the end of March that DFO shut down the Atlantic mackerel commercial bait fishery. Joining us on line number five to discuss it is the CPC member for Costa Bays Central Notre Dame. That's Clifford Small. Good morning, Clifford. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad, sir. How about you? Doing well.
12: Uh, First off, before I start talking about mackerel, I'd like to throw out a bouquet to the firefighters that are battling those fires down along uh, Route 360. It heads down to Costa Bays, and the good news is that Route 360 is up and running again. So uh, that's wonderful, Yep. And thank you very much to these courageous folks that are fighting that fire.
1: Yeah, two helicopters, 29 firefighters, eight pump units all tackling it. They still only have it 7% contained, but enough to reopen that link to the Connegra Peninsula. So good on them, and hopefully they're safe as they continue their work.
12: Well, it's a little bit damp out here today, so hopefully that'll help. And uh, another quick little thing here, I want to throw my moral support behind the people at Green Valley Farms who've tried to help out with our food security issues by growing their beef, uh, a red meat business. And uh, hopefully that gets sorted out in the best possible way so that uh, the Humber's can be up and running again.
1: Sometime soon. Yeah, we're still chasing that issue. That would have uh, produced 10% of the province's red meat consumption, so it's uh, significant to say the least. So we're still on that one.
12: Absolutely. Thank you. I just want to. I just want to to help keep that issue alive. Uh, Yeah. So mackerel uh, patty are very numerous on all coasts around the island. And as you spoke earlier, the minister shut down that fishery because apparently the mackerel stocks are in hard shape. But I was in Costa Bays last week and had reports of numerous uh, mackerel in that area. Uh, They're being reported on the west coast all the way up to to the tip of the northern peninsula and right down into White Bay, Green Bay, Notre Dame Bay. I haven't heard a whole lot out of Bonavista Bay, Trinity and Conception Bay yet, but uh, I I hear there's signs of them there as well. So I just want to keep this issue alive. We need to keep fighting. Mackerel have never been uh, seen in the quantities that they're being seen now. Uh, I've seen video of breaches of mackerel that were nearly a half mile long and uh, DFO needs to reevaluate the decision they made to shut down that fishery.
1: Yeah, the assertion made by DFO is that some of the notable areas where we've seen mackerel in the past, they don't see the spawning biomass that they've seen in years past. But we know that even the fish harvesters they chase the mackerel around. It's not always in the same spot. Like I I always find that to be a bit of a dim-witted assertion that, well, we didn't see where we saw them last year. Well, maybe they're somewhere else because it looks like there's been positive signs for years in the strength of the stock. What's missing here? Because when we're trying to couple anecdotal evidence, catch rates, with actual data that's been compiled by DFO, the FFAW and others have been, for years, yelling for more research to be done in mackerel. It hasn't been done, so consequently, we eyeball something. If we didn't see it the day we were looking, we put a moratorium in place, which has hurt the bait market in particular.
12: Absolutely. There's a huge market for mackerel, and the, the quota has dwindled, dwindled down. Last year, it, it, it was cut from 8,000 metric tons the year before to 4,000, and to th- this year to none. And the Americans have cut their quota a lot. So, the American scientists must not have been finding mackerel in the traditional areas and around the Hudson Channel and, and, and where they normally winter. And the stock is known as an American stock, which I don't understand when the mackerel spend over half the year in Canadian waters. So DFO needs to uh, look at that differently it's a straddling stock or, a, or a, tra- a moving migrating stock but it spends over half its year in our water so it's just as much ours as it is theirs oh sure and um yeah so it seems like uh, where the science has been uh, carried out they've they've been coming up with uh non-traditional results and that reflect reflects that mackerel are not behaving in their traditional way. It doesn't it doesn't mean that the mackerel aren't there. I heard reports last year that mackerel were our northwest Atlantic mackerel were being found in Iceland. Uh technicians that were, were buying mackerel in Iceland found that there's a there's a difference between European mackerel and and, and our mackerel over here. And the technicians could tell the difference. So we don't really know what's going on with their migration patterns except that it's changed a lot and dfo science needs to change with it and right now they need to change the decision that they made way back in march because there's lots of mackerel so maybe they should take a helicopter on a good clear day and fly the coastline and they're very easy to see they're just sitting there a couple of feet under the water or right on top of the water and they get all the evidence that they need and they could even uh, estimate uh, the biomass that's sitting around our
1: coast paddy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's sort of a bubbling stock, right? So, a fair point on the straddle stock. And migratory patterns have changed for a variety of species based on water, temperature, sea ice, and otherwise. So, at the same time where we've got a moratorium on Atlantic mackerel, the global market for mackerel is looking to, or forecast to expand by almost $400 million this year. So, you know, outside of bait, we're a bit on the outside looking in here. So, and then you add to it what is absolutely ridiculous is that the research vessels or most of the research vessels that dfo has access to are in dry dock i mean let's get going here this is just a vitally important issue that we can't be relying on uh, vessels that are in dry dock to compile science and or helicopter paths whatever the case may be but this decision has left a lot of people shocked i'll give you the last word clifford before we say goodbye
12: yeah, uh, you're you're exactly right on the money. DFO's budget has expanded by five billion dollars since 2015. That's 100% went into ocean science instead of fishery science. So they're more concerned about temperatures, uh, salinity, acidity, what you name it. Uh, except doing the job that they're supposed to do, and that's manage our fishery. Uh, And I'll just uh, throw in a quick note on the, you mentioned the salmon closures and some of the the rivers here in Costa Bay, central Notre Dame, and uh, conservation is number one so we can't control the predation uh the, the appetite to to control what's happening in the ocean with the salmon in terms of seals uh gobbling them up that's that's not there but uh at least right now uh, dfo is doing the right thing and and looking after those those salmon that are that are in that uh warmer water this year and and some of the rivers are a bit low so um uh, yeah I'm just uh, I, I agree with their stance on that. I don't disagree with every DFO decision. No, Of course
1: not. Yeah, okay. no, this, this one had to take place. High water temperature, low water levels is a bad combo. so and they're not shutting full. Hour before sunrise at 10 a.m. you can still go out and get a line wet. but after that, you have to get off of the river. This, hap- this has happened in years past, so this one looks like the only decision available to DFO because you're right, not every organization, politician or party is wrong all the time. <laughs> this one seems <laughs> to be the right thing to do. Uh, good to have you on Clifford. Thanks for the time..
12: Thanks for the opportunity, Patty. Have a great day.
1: You too. Bye-bye. Eskermit Bye. Small is the Conservative member, Conservative Party of Canada member for Costa Base Central Notre Dame. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Anna, you're on the air.
13: Hi. 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 Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm I'm a little upset this morning because uh we are on holidays here in Newfoundland and um we were home for a family reunion which was a joyous occasion and uh, we had a problem with our car it uh it wouldn't start so we had it towed to a dealership and while it was in the dealership um they um they were quite good. They came out and dropped us off and came back and picked us up uh, to get the car. And while the car was being brought to us by a valet, it was hit, or they hit something. And now they're saying it's our responsibility because it happened on their parking lot, that it was a parking lot problem. Well, I mean, really. I mean, we were not in the car. We weren't even near the car, but the car was hit or they hit something with our car, and now they want us to go to our insurance. I mean, it's quite upsetting uh, to be here on a holiday and have this happen as a tourist. Uh, I'm originally from Newfoundland, but I'm back, for, as I said, for a family reunion. And this is what we're faced with here today. We have no car. Uh, they, they in the beginning, uh, we're quite good. They accept the responsibility, even loaned us a car. So we have a car. We have their car. But uh, now they're saying um, that we have to, uh, to go to our insurance for this
1: problem strange I'm sorry that it happened to you I can only imagine the frustration the of course there's a couple of different entities you can turn to I don't know how quick a turnaround can be but uh, at the provincial government level all of these complaints regarding consumer affairs is for the digital the Department of uh, digital government and service NL that's who handles complaints in that industry and in all consumer affairs the citizens rep
13: number do you have a rep- phone number
1: for, for them sure I can get that for you pretty quick and da-da-da. 729-2600-2600. Seven,
13: Seven two nine.
1: Two, six zero zero.
13: two six zero zero.
1: And then I suppose you can also uh, file a complaint with the citizen's representative, a.k.a. the ombudsman. That man's name is Bradley Moss in this province. Bradley Moss. Moss. You don't have a mock phone number for him? Do? Oh, let me see. I can probably whip that up. Let's see here. Da-da-da. I'm sorry. Uh, were you going to say something while I looked?
13: Yeah, I was going to ask you who I'm so emotional right now. Who 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 the 7292600 what who is this? What what uh That's
1: the Provincial Department of Digital Government and Service NL. They deal with consumer affairs complaints. That's the okay. government consumer department the responsible for that?
13: Affairs complaints.
1: Okay. Yep, okay. and I can get you this the office of the citizens representative in this province their telephone number I don't know if this is the right home but for the ombudsman it might be a place you can turn as well but it's 729 mm-hmm. 729- Yes. 7647 but I would deal with the provincial department first because that's the home of consumer affairs
13: 7647
1: uh, seven seven. s- four, uh, seven 7647 7647 yeah. okay
13: Okay, so it's 729-7647, but you you suggest that I go to the government one first. Is
1: I, that I do, because that's the home of all consumer affairs issues in the province, is that particular government department, so I would start with them.
13: 729-2600. Okay. That's the one. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome, Anna. Help. Good luck. Okay, all bye. Ready. Bye-bye. Yeah, uh, let's go to line number two. Judy Cameron, you're on the air.
14: Hi, Patty. It's Judy Cameron from Carbonier, my yearly call about Tidley.
1: Welcome back as we place a short <laughs> stick upright against the brick.
14: Right, you know it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. Uh,
14: yeah, just wanted to let you know it's our 14th year, but really 15th, but COVID got in the way, and it's taking place this Sunday, 2 o'clock in, at the rec uh, fields in Carboneer. And uh, just uh, anybody is welcome to come and uh, bring a team and see if they can defeat the uh, Carboneer teams, mostly Carboneer teams, but a lot of CFAs as well coming home uh, and joining up there in the teams.
1: Who are the defending champions?
14: The defending champions for the men are the Charcoal Pots. <laughs> okay, because Carboneer at one time, I think they thought that's where the name came from. And the uh, women's one is the London Road ladies.
1: Are there, is that London Road St. John's or London Road somewhere else London
14: Road Carbonier which okay. is, they were known the well, bog trotters were people who lived on London Road but now it's been very refined and they're now the London Road ladies
1: <laughs> <laughs> whatever it takes so here we go with the 14th annual World Cup I mean no less than the World Cup oh no of we think
14: big here in Carbonier
1: like you should <laughs> and would so how, uh, how much in advance do we have to register is there any opportunity to show up on the day of what do people need to know
14: well uh, technically we'd like people to register we really don't want an uneven number of teams yep. but people do show up and we usually find room for them as well so
1: yeah because all bring, that would end bring up gloves,
14: is bring gloves
1: yes bring gloves for sure and you know we it, don't need the yeah. champs getting a buy because we have an uneven number of teams
14: i know there you go see that could happen so yeah, and thank you and i appreciate you uh, every year um giving us a
1: little plug happy to do it judy okay thanks patty take good care Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. It's Judy Cameron with the 14th annual World Cup of Tiddly. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number four. Good morning, caller. You're on the air.
15: Hi there, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. I wish I was one of those callers with a good news story, but unfortunately I'm not. Um, I'm calling about that guaranteed income that was supposed to be passed in April for people with disabilities that okay. the NTP put on board it originally started out in Vancouver and then I heard the doctor on this morning the doctor of psychology talking to you now I'm one of those parents whose son just turned 18 this month he has autism and now that he's 18, his disability is cut off, his baby bonus is cut off. Even though he will physically be in school till he's 21 years old, he is cut off. His autism did not go away overnight. Mm -hmm. I've been fighting for him since he's three years old, 15 years fighting the government and the educational system of Newfoundland to try to get services in place that are pretty non-existent. Now that he's, he's an adult, I have to fight again, and it's sad. I'm tired, I am fed up, and I'm disheartened about the way the government of Newfoundland and Canada has gone with these people with disabilities. Now, I've reached out to Seamus O'Regan. I've reached out to Jared Singh. I've left voicemails. I've sent emails. And these people are forgotten about and... and You know, we've become so insensitive in Canada that, and I'm not picking on anyone, but you know what? We forget that charity starts at home, and these people, people in tents, the way Canada's become now, it's, I'm ashamed to be a Canadian now.
1: Because of what, sorry?
15: Because of just so many things, like, you know, we have disability people out there, barely, barely surviving. In my case, if I was one of these parents and said, okay, you know, my son's 18, I'm going to put him in a home somewhere. The government would fund non-stop for him but because I'm a parent who loves my child and wants to do the best for my child and keep him at home and keep him in school till he's 21 well you know he he, he pretty much gets cut off in that situation
1: the poverty rate of persons with disabilities is just about double of Canadians without disabilities the new I can't remember exactly what they called it the new disability benefit that has been tabled didn't actually hit the floor until early June so that legislation has not been passed but that is it's out there it's a pledge it's on the floor of the House of Commons it was uh, the initial thought on this started back in budget 2021 when there was 10 or 12 or 13 million dollars or something or other talking about eligibility process but the new disability benefit has not been passed as per legislation yet
15: and the, and the reason is, as far as I'm concerned for that, now that the NDP jumped in with Trudeau, it's like everything else, back to the back burner. And, I mean, I'm hoping those who listen, if you're disabled or you have a child with a disability, we, it, it's time we, we rally together and go to Confederation Building and try to get rid of whoever is in there. Like, this, this... We are pathetic here in Newfoundland.
1: But isn't it, uh, I mean, just the fact that there was this supply and confidence agreement between the NDP and the Liberals is the reason why this is happening. How is that the bad part of, like, I mean, people can like it or not, whether or not the Liberals and the NDP joining forces is a good thing. There's a debate to be had there. But because that happened, this new disability benefit has made its way to the House of Commons, quite likely will be passed, and be a benefit that's newly created.
15: Well, it was, he was fighting, NDP were fighting really hard to get this passed from B.C. all the way through, but now that it seems they've kind of... You know, got on board with one another and believe me, I, ha- I lived a long time in BC and I have a lot of friends with disabled children uh, it seems since they've gotten on board with Trudeau this is just something else to be pushed aside now, I don't know why the government has all this money to support so many other things going on in the world, you know but when it comes to People with disabilities, senior citizens, people with homeless, never mind the unfit state that our health care is in in Newfoundland. Uh, It's mind boggles. It mind boggles the way we are in Canada now.
1: Let's hope that disability benefit gets passed. It looks like it will. They have all the votes that are required to get it through. So, you know, the unfortunate reality is they take these long breaks during the summer months when there's still business on the floor to be attended to, and this is one example. And I think it, was, I think it finally uh, made it on the floor about a month ago anyway, or maybe, little, maybe six weeks ago. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. Let's uh, cross our fingers that this gets passed, and I think it will.
15: Thank you so much.
1: Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going here. Quickly, uh, today would have been Terry Fox's 64th birthday, I'm pretty sure. To us on line number one from the Terry Fox Foundation is caller Cameron. Good morning, Cameron. You're on the air.
5: Oh, hi, I'm calling from the Terry Fox Foundation, and I just wanted to let all your listeners know that today would have been Terry's 64th birthday. And to celebrate, we have a contest where everyone that registers before midnight tonight has a chance to win four 2022 Terry Fox Run t-shirts. And people can register at www.terryfox.org slash run.
1: Well, happy 64th to Terry Fox. Uh, Consensus is one of the greatest Canadians of all time. How long have you been working with the Terry Fox Foundation, Cameron?
5: Um, I'm a summer student for this uh, this summer, so my uh, time ends on August 25th, but I'm still, I've been running the race since I was only nine months old, so I've been doing it for a really long time now.
1: Well, good on you, and I know I usually hear from Kirk Leach at the Terry Fox Foundation, but it would indeed have been Terry's 64th birthday today, so give us the details one more time.
5: Um, so everyone who registers before midnight tonight for our run on September 18th um, has a chance to win four 2022 Terry Fox Run t-shirts, and people can register at www.terryfox.org slash run.
1: Appreciate this, camera. Thanks a lot.
5: Perfect. Thanks so much.
1: Take good care. Bye-bye.
5: Thank here we too. go.
1: 64 years of age. And, of course, started his run here, but I take it. Uh, okay, so there's a caller there. We don't want to give her the short. End of it, so we don't really have time. But Nancy wants to talk about, I I believe she's a tourist, so we'll hear what she has to say about her visit to the province tomorrow morning when we will indeed pick up this conversation right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.